the most important thing is that it's not as bad as you think it is. Um, you know, people are going to die. And I, I posted on Facebook a few weeks ago, the statistics that it's mainly older people who have the serious infections and some older people posted, that doesn't make me feel any better. I understand that uh, some people will die of this infection, but the majority of cases are mild. Today, we're doing something abnormal. It's abnormal because I'm awake at nine in the morning after daylight savings time, and I was still playing League of Legends three hours ago, so I'm here, okay? Um, we're talking to a world-renowned <laughs> virologist, um, Vincent, Dr. Vincent Racanelio, and uh, he's a professor at the Columbia, uh, Columbia University. And he has been studying flu viruses since uh, 1975. Anyway, I thought this was really important. Ethan brought me on. We're actually front page on Twitch, so I have to be on my best behavior today. So I'm not going to be, after this, I'm going to be relatively professional compared to what I normally am. Um, because this is important, uh, important information. Because there's a lot of misinformation around there about the, <clears throat> the uh, coronavirus. And I figured we would all want to know about it. So that's what we're doing. We're doing this. So I think we're at 9 a.m. Let's go. Uh, let's do this. Uh, it's so, so early. Yeah. Good morning. I'm Ethan Evans. I'm your host this morning. I am vice president of Twitch Prime at Amazon. Uh, today, I won't be speaking. I never do. Actually, on behalf of Twitch or Amazon, I'm representing myself. But I'm lucky enough to have here as a guest... Dr. Vincent Racaniello, and as a co-host, my frequent co-streamer, Devin Nash. Uh, so Dr. Racaniello has uh, said we should call him Vincent, so I will drop the formal title. But Vincent, uh, I know you're a professor of microbiology and immunology at Columbia University. Could you share a little bit more about your background uh, as we get ready to talk about coronavirus here this morning? Sure. Good morning, and thanks uh, for having me. So thanks for being here, man. Uh, my pleasure. I, I just love talking about viruses. Uh, <laughs> oh, we I, love hearing about them, especially right now. <laughs> well, I think you eat love now because there's an outbreak, but I talk about them all the time, even when there aren't outbreaks, although I would argue that there's always an outbreak somewhere. So I'm a virologist. I have trained to do research on viruses way back in 1979. I got a PhD to work on uh, influenza viruses. Uh, then I did some more work on polioviruses. I started a lab here at Columbia in 1982. We do research on viruses. We don't work on coronaviruses. But uh, I then wrote a virology textbook with a bunch of other authors. I've been, for the last 10, 12 years, been blogging about viruses. I do a podcast called This Week in Virology. So I've been thinking about all viruses and their impact on uh, life on Earth here. And so one of my favorite things to do in the past 10 years has been to try and explain viruses to anyone who will listen. So that's my background. I'm really, and I also teach a course here at Columbia, which I have to point out. Today this is great, was, by the way. Irony time, everyone. Today was canceled because of the coronavirus outbreak. It's never happened in the 10 years I've been teaching it. The course will go on. You can you can find it over at YouTube. But um I, I post all my lectures anyway, so the, the students will get exams. They'll get they'll learn about viruses, and uh, many many thousands of people 
uh, take virology through that course. So let's uh, talk about viruses. I'm happy to be here. All right. Well, thank you and welcome. And Devin, do you want to briefly introduce yourself? Uh, we have 2,000 viewers on my side, thanks to Twitch supporting this as a public service. They know who I am. All no, right, I'm kidding. Every <laughs> yes, I wow, everyone knows the great Devin Nash. I'm Devin Nash. I'm the... I, what do I do? Um, I stream here on Twitch.tv covering uh, very mostly very important issues, stuff like this, other stuff, business, media, industry stuff. I also am the chief marketing officer of a talent agency called Nerd Fusion that works closely with Twitch and YouTube influencers. Um, and I'm also part of that influencing circle now accidentally <laughs> having talked about it for a while. Um, I used to be in esports. I ran a company called Counterwatching Gaming. And uh, before that, uh, I ran a company in North America with Odie called Team Dignitas. And uh, then before that, I was playing a lot of video games, man. Um, All right. I actually, but I do want to say one more thing. I actually do have a serious fascination with um, virology. Uh, just, you know, unofficial armchair magician type stuff. But I have read so much about it. Um, in particular, just really one of the things that really interests me is viruses that you get and then they stick with you, like HSV-1, 2, those kind of things um, that like exist forever in you and then may cause effects later on. They're such interesting organisms and, it's, uh, and are um, almost as intelligent as us, but just in a different way. So I'm really looking forward to this talk personally, and I'm really glad you're here. All right. So, Vincent, uh, maybe start with some basic facts about coronavirus, uh, meaning what is it? Uh, what are the basic things we know about it? Uh, why does it make you sick? Not all viruses make people so sick. Just a few of the the sort of basic groundwork of this virus and what we know. All right. So there are many viruses on the planet, more than anyone can imagine. Most of us, most of them don't affect us in any way. In fact, all three of us and everyone listening right now is infected with many different viruses and most of them are not having any effect on you. But we do know that a, a number of viruses that infect people do make us sick, and there are all kinds of ways they're transmitted, and there are all kinds of different diseases that they cause. The coronaviruses have been known to us for many years, and before these epidemic coronaviruses came to our attention, we knew about uh, a handful of coronaviruses that basically cause common colds, right? You're all aware of a common cold. It's an upper respiratory tract infection, typically sore throat, sniffles, maybe cough, never, rarely. Yeah, there you go. I have mine right now. Uh, so Typically not serious. So many viruses do that. Rhinoviruses are the most common, but adenoviruses and coronaviruses can do it. So for many years, we knew about coronaviruses. They're called mild disease. Most people didn't know about them. There were a handful of people working on them, but they didn't get much attention. I called it, I've called it a cottage industry. And then all of a sudden, in 2003, <laughs> we have the emergence of SARS coronavirus starting in China, uh, spread to 29 countries, 8,000 infections, uh, quite a high mortality ratio. Uh, and that disappeared. That seemed to have originated in a bat. Uh, we were able to control that. So that was great. But it did point out to us that there are these viruses harbor, replicating or existing in bats in many parts of the world. 
Then, of course, in 2013, another coronavirus emerged uh, in the Middle East, MERS coronavirus, uh, which is with us to this day. It causes very short chains of infections. The reservoir appears to be camels, and they're very popular in that part of the world. The camels are all infected at birth. They get a respiratory disease, then they recover and they shed during that infectious period, and they can transmit it to people. And those infections uh, don't last. They don't. The virus does not seem to establish itself as a human infection. So every time you hear of a case of MERS coronavirus, it's a brand new uh, infection from a camel. That's so amazing. Uh, I I had heard of MERS. But the idea that it's coming from camels uh, is not something I had known. And it's just, mm -hmm. uh, I think that's one of those things that if I wrote it in a novel, uh, that this this person and this character got sick from his camel, people would put the novel down. So uh, <laughs> truth is stranger than fiction. Well, you know, the, the reality is that every human virus that we have, that everyone knows about, let's say smallpox, polio virus, influenza virus, norovirus, at some point, they all came from an animal, from a non-human animal, mm. uh, because they have been inhabiting Earth longer than we have. And uh, sometimes our ancestors got infected and passed it down. But in many cases, the burden of infection started when we began agriculture and people started to congregate in big numbers and we started keeping livestock. So for example, measles virus probably is a virus we got from cows when we first started growing them in large numbers. And when you, you know, grow animals, the handlers are close to them and they acquire their viruses. This happens to this day. And so this latest coronavirus, which emerged at the end of 2019, again, we uh, think, and there's some evidence, but it hasn't been proven yet. We think the origin is a bat uh, and it's spilled over into humans by contact with uh, uh, either bats or an intermediary animal and now this one, in, in contrast to SARS and in contrast to MERS, is really spreading globally. And um, it's not going to go away like, like, like MERS does after very short chains of infections. And this, this is a more serious uh, infection than a common cold in many people, not in everyone. And we should talk about that. Uh, but it is a human virus now. It's got, it's got the ability to transmit from human to human very efficiently. And it's not the last time this will happen. Uh, this will happen again in the future. I don't know exactly when, but it will happen because with population, human population growing, there are more opportunities to interface with animals that harbor various viruses. It's not just bats, but other animals can harbor viruses and pass them on to us as well. And it will keep occurring unless uh, we do something about it. And I have to say, I think we could have been ready for this, but we're not, unfortunately. Because and when, and we'll, we'll cover that later. I definitely want to talk yeah. to you about what you think could have been done because I happen to agree with you. I'm not thrilled with our response so far. Um, and I will note, I didn't bring this up on stream. Both uh, Devin and I live in the greater Seattle area. Mm -hmm. And uh, Devin normally works from his uh, small company. Um, and so he has sort of perfect isolation where he is in his studio this morning. Also, I'm a troglodyte and play video games all day, so I never encounter other human beings. Uh, keeps him very safe. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but I work uh, for Amazon in Seattle, and I and my team and all my coworkers have been asked to work for, from home for the entire month, yeah. uh, which is a huge societal experiment. Um, Seattle has been sent home, uh, as has much of the Bay Area, the people who can work from home. 
But before we go into that, um, maybe talk a little bit, if you could, about what we know about why coronavirus makes you sick. What is the mechanism? What is the effect? Um, why do people, some people ultimately uh, die from it? What's going on in the body with coronavirus? So I think it's important to understand that every virus has a different way of causing disease. So the coronavirus is a family of viruses. They have they can cause a similar respiratory disease. And then we have polioviruses, which target different tissues in us. So it's not that one virus can do it all. Viruses tend to be specialized. So coronaviruses are the ones that we're talking about, these common cold ones and the, the epidemic ones, they're respiratory viruses, which means that you acquire them by inhaling uh, fine aerosols or particles, liquid particles that are containing virus. And when I'm talking here, I am emitting a stream of particles that could contain viruses if I'm infected with one. Uh, it turns out that speaking is a really good generator of such uh, particles. And then, of course, sneezing and, and coughing. So the viruses, you would inhale, it would enter your nose, your upper respiratory tract. The viruses attached to the cells that line your uh, respiratory tract. The virus can enter them, multiply, produce more viruses. And those, of course, will be shed. And then as you talk and sneeze, they're expelled. But then within you, the viruses, the coronaviruses that are the, the current one especially, can spread down into the lower respiratory tract. Of course, going down uh, the, the trachea, eventually even reaching the very termini of the lung, the alveoli, and causing a pneumonia. And so the viruses have a predilection for uh, reproducing in, in that part of us. Other, as I said, other viruses replicate elsewhere and cause different kinds of disease. It's just right. the way that they have evolved. There's no, mm -hmm. there's no why answer there. Why do coronaviruses infect? They just do other viruses infect. Whatever is available to a virus, there will be a virus that infects it. And so uh, in most individuals, it's important to understand that in 80% of the infections that we've seen so far, and this is a history based mainly on China, but also now more and more cases elsewhere, 80% of the infections are mild. You might, even, you might not even know that you're infected. You may think you have a sniffle or a cold or maybe a mild flu and just go about your normal life. And it is only in a, in a small fraction that it becomes more serious and in an even smaller fraction, it is fatal. And in those cases, the virus is getting deep into the lung and the infection causes an immune response, which we call inflammation. And that is designed, of course, to try and eliminate the virus from your lungs, but it also has the consequence of making you sicker. And for the coronaviruses, the epidemic ones, the SARS, the MERS, and the current one, SARS-CoV-2, a good part of the serious disease in people is caused by an over-exuberant immune response. You have an immune response in your lungs, and that's contributing to it. It's not the case for all viruses, but certain ones we we, we lump together the effect of the virus on you, killing cells, but also your immune response, which is attempting to clear it, is actually doing some damage. We call that immunopathology, and it's very common in virus infections. And in, uh, in, in lay terms, is that a way to say uh, that to some degree your body kills itself in it's, its uh, attempt? Cytokines, in its attempt. right? Cytokines are Cytokines, part of it, exactly. Yeah. Cytokine we have storm. Lymphocyte, we have lymphocytes and macrophages and other immune cells coming into the infected area. They can all cause damage. So I, I view, and many of us view, the 
our immune defense is a double-edged sword, right? It can help you, but it can also contribute uh, to disease. And, and that's often why um, people with reduced immune responses may have less uh, disease in certain cases. So that's the, the situation here. A lot of the serious lung disease is, uh, is a, has an immune component. And then, of course, we have individuals who are, have other health issues. They have lung respiratory problems. They have heart problems. And they're even more susceptible because they have compromised immune systems that can't even clear the virus. All right. So um, before we were able to start this morning, before I put the stream live, you mentioned to me that you had just received a paper that you were able to share about this, how the virus uh, may spread on surfaces as uh, compared to direct you breathe out, I breathe in. Is that mm -hmm. correct? Can you share a little bit about that? Because I think that's a that's an unknown to me and to most of the audience. Everyone is saying, wash your hands. And uh, I was at a bank a few days ago and the teller was energetically wiping down the surface before serving me. Um, how much does that matter? So let's talk a little bit about this paper. It's a manuscript which has been sent to the New England Journal of Medicine, which is a place where these, these sorts of studies may be published, a rather prominent journal. And this is done by a group, a multi-center group, but the, the main location is in Hamilton, Montana, where there happens to be a division of the National Institutes of Health, a laboratory of virology there. And the paper is called Aerosol and Surface Stability of SARS-CoV-2 Compared to SARS-CoV-1. Okay. Comes out of the lab of Vincent Munster, uh, whom I happen to know. And uh, I have actually interviewed him on my podcast. And the first author is Neil Giovandoramala. And basically, here's the story. Very important. You want to know how long the virus infectivity remains, not only on surfaces, but on aerosols that you are producing, right? Uh-huh. Yes. So they say, here's the quote. We found that viable virus could be detected in aerosols up to three hours post aerosolization. Oh so my they, God. Three hours in an wow. aerosol. Four hours on copper, up to 24 hours on cardboard, and two to three days on plastic and stainless steel. Jesus. Wow. And um, why, why would a virus have such wildly different ability to survive on different surfaces that doesn't seem to make sense well, to, a, the, to a lay person. The copper is actually uh, probably destroying the infectivity. We know that copper is antibacterial. Yes. In a number of studies that have shown that in hospitals, if you line surfaces of highly trafficked areas like bed rails with copper, you reduce <laughs> the amount of hospital acquired infections. So copper is antimicrobial in general, and it's certainly antiviral that's been shown. So the four wow. hours is probably because the copper is acting now 24 hours on cardboard because it's just sitting there and eventually it does lose infectivity. Uh, two to three days on plastic and stainless steel. This is actually not out of line from what we already know from studies done with SARS cor coronavirus, the first one. And in fact, they compare the two in this study and they have similar um, re uh, resistance in these, uh, in these studies. So, uh, pretty long viability. <clears throat> so so the two viruses, the old SARS virus, old SARS-CoV-1 would be yep. known as the 2003 SARS virus to most people right? Um, or, or the cause of that disease. Um, 
you're saying that the two viruses transmit the same on surfaces or appear to in this paper. And so the difference between the two is there uh, is some other factor than how long they survive on surfaces. Yeah, they, what they say here is that the two viruses, they will retain infectivity on these surfaces for similar amounts of time. Yes. Um, whether, I mean, now the, the question is, what this means is that, and they say this, aerosol and fomite transmission, fomite are these surfaces, is plausible. But doesn't yeah. tell you that it, it actually happens because, you know, just because there is virus for two days on a surface doesn't mean there's enough to actually infect you. Mm, right. You know, in their experiments, they have, they have put virus on a surface, and let it sit there, and then they measure it at different times after they add it. But it may not be enough to infect you. And we don't actually know how much virus of, of, a, of a COVID-2 is actually needed to infect you. It could be that some, let's say you get a package from somewhere and it has virus on it and it's long enough so that infectivity is retained, it might not be enough virus to infect you because in a respiratory pathogen, you often need quite a bit of virus uh, to, to start the infection. Now, other viruses are different. So, I mean, this just simply means that it's, it's possible that you yes. could get infection. We certainly know that it's happening in, um, in droplets that we are transmitting infection. Yes, uh, but clearly. this means that from certain surfaces, if there's enough virus there, it could potentially do that, right? And, and I, I should call out um, the gentleman who introduced me to uh, Vincent, um, who is uh, in in my chat. We keep posting his credentials. He's a professor of uh, microbiology and immunology uh, at Columbia University. But the gentleman who introduced us is in my chat as Ligerbox and is very interested in surface transmission because uh, he works with actual patients in Singapore. Um, and so he's uh, working in direct contact. And I guess right now though, because we don't have very good ability to trace infection path, even though there are many infected people, we haven't yet been able to definitively discriminate who is getting it directly person to person versus what you called fomite transmission from touching a surface and then touching your nose or eyes. And That's so right. practically then that would mean the best advice, the wash your hands advice, avoid touching your face, wipe down surfaces appears to be good advice right now, practically. Yeah, absolutely. You have to cover both mechanisms, the airborne mechanism and the touching fomite-based mechanism, you have to cover both because we're not sure of the relative contribution. So yes, washing your hands is absolutely essential because if you're in a public place, I take the subway twice a week and the, you know, the, the poles are a good source of contamination. We don't know if that happens, but I studiously wash my hands and avoid touching myself when I get back. And okay. in the same way, you should stay a certain distance. If you're in an area where there are a lot of people, you should stay a certain distance from people because those large drops will fall to the ground within, a, say, six feet or so. And so you have to maintain a distance. And if you can, stay away from large groups of people. And that's part of the reason why my classes at Columbia have been canceled. Right. Uh, so I was... Uh, go ahead, Devin. So, you take so if somebody sneezes, it floats in the air for three hours? No, the, what it says here is that in an aerosol like that produced by sneezing, and this is done in a lab, so it's it's a mechanical aerosol. 
the virus will retain infectivity. But no, the, this will not stay in the in the air for three hours. Not at all. It will fall to the ground. Okay. Relatively quickly. Because you know, like, large. When you're walking oh. through a forest, you hit a spider's web, and like right. if I just hit a spider's <laughs> web with the virus, that would suck so bad. You know yeah, no, I mean? no, this is not going to stay in the air for three hours. Cool. If, if you know, th these aerosols will fall to the ground quickly. So, you know, if you go into a room and no one's been there for, you know, five, 10 minutes, then the, all the viruses have fall fallen to the ground. So I mean, that's super interesting, though. Um, if someone uh, we all get the idea that having someone sneeze on you would be very bad or maybe even sneeze directly towards you or in a crowded room. Right. Right. But how long? If I'm walking down a hallway, not that I go to work anymore, I work from home, but if I'm walking down a hallway or in school and someone sneezed and I didn't see them, how, how long is that sneeze still in the air? So this is an interesting question because when you sneeze, you make a whole range of droplet sizes. You make large ones that fall to the ground within a foot. You make intermediate sized droplets, which go a couple of feet. And then you make a really fine aerosol that can go one or 200 feet. And we Whoa. don't believe what? that this, we don't believe these particular coronas are in those fine aerosols, right? The, the, the in, information we have doesn't support that. We think they're in the larger droplets that fall quickly. So the, the answer to your question depends on which droplets you're talking about. If we're talking <laughs> about the, the coronavirus containing droplets. They likely will fall to the ground within minutes and stay there. And unless you are getting near to the ground and wiping it and wiping yourself you're not going to get infected by them and so the, you know this practice of disinfecting my chat the ground, says do not lick the floor do not oh, lick the floor good advice yeah. but you know the, there's a practice uh, which you've seen of, of uh, disinfecting the ground which i think is really wasted effort because you're not going to be getting uh, viruses once it's hit those are the like the the guys that are dressed up like video game bosses and they have the big lawnmowers and they're blasting smoke or something yeah they're mm. they're fogging with you know, bleach or peroxide or something. Sounds and, incredibly dangerous to humans also. Uh, I would agree. I don't think it's a good practice. <laughs> okay. Well, this is, um, yeah. this is fear, right? Yes, There's so absolutely. much. It's this fear. is, uh, I don't know when we'll best get into this topic, but even for myself, the challenge of this topic, and I think for many viewers, is fear of the unknown. We yes, don't know. Exactly so much about it. We That's don't know how here. much it will spread. We don't know uh, what the real, uh, the thing I was going to go into next is what is the real fatality rate, which is mm -hmm. hotly debated and I think unknown. Uh, but since we have someone who's more expert than either Devin or myself, um, do you want to talk a little bit about what we do and don't know about exactly how deadly this disease is? Right. So there is one way to measure how deadly an infectious disease is. It's a very simple and crude way, which is to simply take the number of people who have died and divide that by the number of people we know are infected. There are other ways you could do it. You could base it on the total population or you could base it on people at risk, but let's, the simplest is total deaths over total number of infections. And so we call that the case fatality ratio not rate. Some people are calling it a rate. It's not a rate. It's a ratio. It's often it's expressed ratio. as a percent. Very simple. I don't, I'm not great at math, but <laughs> I, I can get that. So in this outbreak, if you go to any number of websites, you can find the total number of deaths that have been reported and the total number of infections that have been reported. And 
again, those numbers are not absolutes, especially the denominator, the total number of infections is only what we can diagnose. And I am sure the total number of infections with SARS-CoV-2 is way higher than the bottom. It's somewhere over 100,000 now. Yes. And I'm sure it is far greater, at least two or threefold, maybe even more, because we can't possibly diagnose everyone. And there's a lot of people walking around with very mild infections with COVID-2 and we'll never diagnose them. So that makes this ratio, this case fatality ratio, a bit uh, inaccurate, right? Because you just you actually don't know the denominator. Anyway, that being said, if you just take the numbers, all the numbers we have, put one over the other, you get something like three or 4%, right? Which scares everyone because yeah. 1918 pandemic flu was about 2% and seasonal influenza is way lower. So that immediately scares people. But I would argue that it's not fair to do that whatsoever because if you look, let's say Korea, where they've had thousands of cases, they're case fatality ratio is about 0.4%. And that's the whole population. You look in other countries, it's three to 4%. But if you look even within China, it varies depending on where in the country you look. In the Wuhan area, it's higher. If you go south, it's much lower. And we think that's because in the Wuhan area, the hospitals are overwhelmed. They can't take care of everyone, so more people are dying. Also, yeah. during the course of the Chinese outbreak, from the beginning to about a month and a half later, the case fatality ratio changed. It went down as they learned how to take care of patients. And finally, one more part, you stratify the information according to age, you see a very different picture. You see yes. less than nine years old, nobody has died. And all the way up till 50 years of age, the case fatality ratio is less than 1%. It's only when you start getting into older people over 60 and particularly over 70 and 80, you get higher rate ratios. So yeah, it's this, very, this overall it's very number, skewed. This overall number is not fair to state either in a news report or anecdotally. <clears throat> it is absolutely wrong because it really depends on where you are, how old you are, what kind of care you are getting, your general health, right? So you can't say that you have you have a two or three percent chance of uh, dying if you get infected because it's not true. It depends uh, who you are and where. Is it's, it? Uh, it's dependent on so many factors to just list those back because um, one of them is age. And right. obviously, a lot of the people uh, who watch Twitch are on the younger end of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. um, uh, one of them appears to be gender. Uh, but there's a question of is that because of underlying behavior? Um, uh, as uh, Vincent said, it depends on availability of care. Um, but maybe uh, talk just a bit uh, about the stats I saw seem to indicate that at least in China, men were passing away at about twice the rate. There's some suspicion that that has to do with the high incidence of smoking. Talk a little bit about underlying factors or other things that influence the risk. Right. So that, of course, is speculation because yes. you'd need to do a careful uh, epidemiological study to try and get at the underlying reasons for, for that. We know that in many infectious diseases, there's a sex difference. In yes. Some, you know, men are, are, have more infections or more lethal infections than women or vice versa. It depends really on, on the virus. And it seems to involve in part, you know, immunity, hormonal changes that could influence immunity. So we don't really know what's going on in China. But as you said, the um, it seems that men are, are having more serious disease at, uh, than women at a certain rate. And it has been speculated that a lot of that's because a lot of men 
in China smoke and, and many fewer women do not. So that seems on the surface to be an appealing explanation, but you know, there could be other things that are yes. less obvious that we're not picking up. But I should say that smoking is known to damage the respiratory tract. It, it physically damages the cells in the tract and it um, also will inhibit your immune responses when the time comes that you have an infection. And these changes persist until you stop smoking. And we know that if you've stopped for a while, the, the lungs can recover and you could be more resilient. So it makes sense that it would be smoking, but until we sort it out, we really don't know. And folks in chat are um, naturally very interested. There's a lot of people with a variety of conditions, whether it's asthma or uh, other lung conditions. Is it fair to say, given what little we know, that generally, if you have a compromised respiratory ability, this disease would appear to be more dangerous to you, just as like a broad A than B? Yeah, I mean, I think even no matter what your age, if you have compromised lung function, uh, this is going to be a problem because as the virus infects your lungs, not only is it damaging cells, but the alveoli are filling with fluid and that compromises their ability to exchange gases, which is what happens in the alveoli, right? So you can't get enough oxygen. And many of the most serious patients have to be given oxygen externally to make up for the, the inability to, to take it up. So you get a concentrated stream of oxygen because uh, they can't absorb it as efficiently. So you're absolutely right. Anyone with any kind of lung issue should really uh, be especially vigilant and try to avoid infection because it could be even if you're 30 uh, and you have these issues, this could be a serious infection. So let's talk about that for a minute, specifically hospitals. And you mentioned uh, being overwhelmed or limited ability to care. One of the disaster scenarios that's commonly discussed right now by the people who are more concerned about a, a massive pandemic breaking out is that um, that our healthcare system will become overwhelmed and that people who might otherwise be saved uh, will not be able to because of limited hospital capacity. Mm -hmm. um, and I realize that's not your full area of expertise, but as someone um, with more expertise than either of us in that, what would you say about the potential for that, the reality of that scenario with what we know today? Well, as we saw in Wuhan area, which was where this uh, outbreak began, they were overwhelmed very early on. And the, the hospitals that were the most skilled at taking care of seriously ill patients were limited. So patients got shuttled to lower care areas and there the care wasn't as good. So they ended up building a, a new hospital in a week, right, to take care of a lot of patients to deal with that. Which so is astounding. I just wonder if we could do that here, right? Mm. Well, wouldn't I, I? I don't know. Um, I mean, I think we would do something like a tent with beds in it, or like, yeah. In other words, it would. You're not going to build a physical building. Well, yeah. as you know, in in the in Africa during the Ebola outbreak of 2015, that's what they did. They built tent-like uh, structures. They're called Ebola treatment centers, and they could do isolations there and take care of patients, and that worked really well. So, yes, I think you're probably right. Um, the maybe my understanding is that here in New York City we have a limited number of hospital beds, right? And we have 12 million people here, so yes, we could never accommodate everyone for certain. But 
again, 80% of the infections are mild and do not require any hospitalization. That leaves 20%, which potentially could. But then again, if you can limit transmission, then not everyone is going to be uh, infected, at least not seriously. So I think my feeling is that we can control the, the outbreak sufficiently in, in other parts of China. They were ab able to limit transmission. And so the, the hospital shortage was not an issue in the South, particularly. They had reasonable uh, mortality ratios there. So I think it's, uh, it's a scary scenario, but not one uh, that's likely to come to pass. Now, there are better qualified people than, than me to talk about that. But from the point of view of uh, how serious this is, let me just give you a comparator Please. We have 15 million influenza cases in the U.S. so far this year, in this flu season, which began last fall and will go till May with 8,000 deaths. And I think most people don't even realize that. It's not publicized very much. Uh, and that does not overburden the hospital capacity. It's an ongoing illness. Throughout the winter, when I teach my course, there's always someone absent because of influenza. Uh, and they go get checked and and they get taken care of. Now, of course, there we have a, a vaccine available that mitigates the disease. We have antivirals that can be used, which we don't have for this. And so you could argue that it's not comparable. But so far, the number of global deaths have been far fewer than just those in the U.S. from influenza. Right. And so and I, I, I think that's all uh, good news, really. Yeah. And I think that's very worth sharing. While it's possible that COVID-19 could become very, very widespread, today... Uh, influenza has been much more fatal. As you said, 15 million cases in the United States only, 8,000 deaths in the United States only. Um, it's certainly possible, and, and many of those who are more fearful predict an exponential growth in coronavirus uh, infections that will, will make coronavirus much more deadly over the long term. But that's not true right now. Or isn't it the case that mutation or some some aspect that we don't understand or some more serious strain comes out? Like it's it's the unknown factor of the possibilities of the virus that people are so afraid of. Or I don't completely understand that. All right, so let's address that. That's really important because yeah. people are worried about that. In my opinion, that's that's irrelevant. That's not going to happen here. Interesting. The, the virus. Okay. The only thing that drives evolution of viruses is finding a new host, and this one is really good at that. It transmits really well. Uh, it doesn't cause serious disease in everyone. I have to say that SARS, SARS-1, SARS-1.0, right? <laughs> SARS-1 made people really sick and they got hospitalized. Over half of the cases were put in the hospital where they could limit transmission. And this is not a good uh, evolutionary scenario for a virus because it limits transmission. And that's one of the reasons why that virus eventually disappeared. We were able to contain the infections in a hospital and limit transmission. This one transmits really well. So I don't see why it would need to change to get more transmissible. It's, it's already very effective. And then the other scenario, could it be more lethal? Why would it do that? That's not a, an outcome that is beneficial for a virus to be more lethal. If anything, it would, it would evolve to become less lethal so the hosts could survive longer and transmit more effectively to other hosts. So the scenario of a mutant virus emerging with 
brand new properties that are worse than than uh, than we have, like the contagion scenario, right? In the middle of the outbreak, it it mutates to get worse. That that doesn't make any sense from a scientific viewpoint. And so, again, this <clears throat> virus is really good at transmitting. That shouldn't change. If anything, it might get less able to transmit and uh, sorry, less virulent, so that it transmits even better. As I said. Okay. And speaking of transmission, one of the things that's been said about this virus, or more specifically about the disease it causes, is that people are transmissible potentially for several days before they show serious symptoms. So you talked mm -hmm. about how with SARS 1.0, as you called it, by the time people were infectious, they were also very visibly sick. But that doesn't appear to be true here. Is What do we know about that? So that's a good point. It lets us talk about this, what we call the incubation period of Great. a virus infection, right? This is the period between when you first acquire virus, in this case, we inhale it, to when you first show signs of disease uh, and signs or symptoms. So those are two different things. Symptoms are what you feel and signs are what other people can see, right? And so depending on the virus, you can transmit or might maybe not during that incubation period. For some viruses, there's very little transmission. Like Ebola virus, you typically do not transmit until you have symptoms, like a fever. Right. Whereas for other viruses, you can transmit during this period. For influenza, you can transmit about a day before uh, clinical symptoms emerge. And for this virus, it, it also appears, the evidence so far suggests that you can be shedding before you have symptoms. and the key is whether it's enough to infect someone else. And there are a few reports that I have seen where suggests that maybe there has been a this is what we would call asymptomatic transmission. That is yes. transmission from someone with no symptoms, but the data are really low at this point. I think what is more likely is that we have very mildly infected people with a sniffle or, you know, mild cough, walking around shedding virus. They already have disease. They don't know it's COV and, and they think it's flu or something. And I think those are the, the very efficient transmitters. <clears throat> and that's me. I, I believe I have a common cold from my daughter, right. but and uh, this guy unironically invites me to go to a, a ball. He goes to the Sounders game in Seattle, the soccer game. And he's like, Oh, I just have a cold. And I, and I read that too, doctor, that the, the whole like report with my, can you believe this guy? He is the problem. <laughs> he's the, this wow, that's a good pointing, that, pointing that, your that, finger at me, quite literally. <laughs> Devin has his finger. I so this, know yes. this is the direction you're in, but... I, so I, am, I, I, I was accused, someone <laughs> called me patient zero in my, in my stream last night. No, but uh, people in no, chat are, no interested, <laughs> uh, are interested in that. Um, I did make the choice to go to the Seattle Sounders game. Um, and I would say... Uh, I. We thought it was very funny because no one um, normally, of course, all stadiums love to announce their attendance. Some at some point they come over the loudspeaker and say, mm -hmm. a sold out game, blah, blah, blah. People, there was no announcement because the stadium was well below capacity, far mm -hmm. below what would normally be that there. picture. He, he took a picture and sent it to me on his phone. It was nuts because I was originally well, that, supposed to go. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Devin, Devin and I were going to go together. I was going to get him out of his video game cave. I, yeah. I'm too and scared. he elected to stay safely swaddled within I eat uh, the cost of the tickets. But I was like, <laughs> there's no way, man. Like, you know, it's crazy. <laughs> so people in chat are very interested, though, about um, 
should they be going to school? Should should schools be open? Um, obviously, here in Seattle, we've sent people who can work from home home, but all of my children are still in school. Can you comment a little bit about those epidemiological controls, uh, the actions that have been taken in northern Italy with strict quarantine or China? Well, this is quite uh, the subject because, you know, we don't have any careful studies to say how effective any of this has been. So the Chinese experience, you know, they had massive restrictions on movement. Yes. I got lots of emails to the podcast from people living there saying, you know, you couldn't leave your apartment without a fever check. You could only go out once a week to get food. So that's pretty draconian, but yes. it doesn't eliminate human human contact. You can't do that, right? Because society has to continue functioning. There's always has to be someone out there moving around and encountering other people and that will maintain the, the infections. So, the question of whether we should be limiting it, it it's very difficult. So uh, here in the U.S., we are never going to achieve the same limitations as they did in China. It's just not in our DNA to do that. And we can't. You have people living in homes. Who's going to keep you in your home? Whereas in China, apparently, many people are in gated communities where they can restrict movement and so forth. So there's always going to be movement, which in the, in the end will move uh, virus around. Um, I think it makes sense when there's a, an outbreak in your area to limit uh, gathering of individuals. Um, you know, here in New York City, you know, we've had some cases, but it's not widespread yet. And, and at Columbia, my university, uh, one student had presumed contact with an infected person, wasn't even diagnosed yet when they decided to cancel classes as a precaution. I don't think that's something you should do for months at a time that doesn't seem to make sense. I mean, mitigating all of this. So I can't tell if that would make a difference or not. And mitigating all of this is what really worries me is during an outbreak, um, the population gets infected and you develop immunity to infection. So you won't be reinfected. Mm -hmm. And at a certain percentage of population immunity, which depends on the virus and the population, the epidemic stops because it, the virus can't find new hosts to infect. Okay. So all, all epidemics are going to be self-limiting in that sense. No, you will never infect everyone. You don't have to because the virus will not be able to find in any given number of people, if a certain percentage are immune, the, the efficiency of transmission goes way down and that stops the outbreak. And so I'm worrying that by quarantining people, we are maintaining a high level of non-immune people. And so in China, for example, when they say, okay, everyone can go back to their normal thing, there will still be people. Which they've just done. They've and just... they will perhaps initiate a second round <clears throat> of an outbreak. So it's kind of, it's a toss up between whether you want to have all the infections happen here. And I can understand why they're closing schools. I mean, the main issues are older people who will get serious infection. And even though my class is all young people, they may interface with older people at some point in their daily lives and, and put them at risk. So, so I can see, especially us professors, right? We're, we're the oldest so there's one a, in the class. <laughs> there's a rumor um, going around a lot of the time that uh, it's possible for this virus to reinfect people with some kind of more serious symptoms. Is that baseless? Yeah, I would say that's a rumor that has no basis in established fact. I've Very looked at cool. some of the anecdotal reports. Um, you know, there are most for most virus infections, you get infected, you have immunity, 
unless the virus changes, and there are few viruses that do that, but there are, you know, influenza is one of them. We have no evidence that's ha that that's happening with this coronavirus, and I think uh, we should we should understand the basis, which is that virus infections give you an immunity. And what's going on in these anecdotal cases, I have no idea, but I'm I'm not worried that this is going to uh, reinfect an immune person. I'm not worried about that at all. And this is probably a good point uh, to emphasize for anybody who hasn't followed the link we keep posting in chat to Vincent's qualifications. He's been studying viruses uh, since 1977 uh, when he began his academic career. Um, and uh, you raise a really great point because flu comes back every year. And just mm -hmm. because you had the flu a year or two or three years ago does not make you forever safe from flu. Right. Uh, but you're saying from what we know so far, it might be that if you have COVID-19 once, you may never be able to get it again. Uh, well, obviously, we don't know. It's been only a few months. But talk about that difference a little bit. So if, for influenza, it's an unusual situation where the virus can change very slightly from year to year so that if you were infected last year or had a vaccine, then it, that vaccine is not good as good as it should be at preventing infection. You, you can get reinfected, you will maybe get milder disease. And so that's why we tell people, you know, the vaccine against influenza is not perfect but it's better than nothing. And if you have even the little bit of immunity provided by the vaccine, it will probably make less serious disease. So influenza is weird because it can change in a way from year to year to evade your immunity to a certain extent. As far as we know, this does not happen with coronaviruses. And for, for the common cold coronaviruses, we have not seen it. We didn't see it for SARS-1 and MERS. So even though it's very early in SARS-2, uh, COVID-2, I, I don't think there's any reason to think that this virus is going to change. Now, you asked whether you would have lifelong immunity, basically, uh, from infection, which is possible. It depends, again, on you. Some people have a suboptimal immune response, and so they don't have lifelong immunity. But the ability for us to eradicate smallpox, which was done in 1979, is based on the idea that you, once you're immunized, you have lifelong immunity. So in some cases, it certainly is possible. Um, okay. As far Go ahead, Devin. Well, since we're talking about like, um, the, like the strains and everything, another like real, like one of the big reasons we're doing this is because we want to uh, avoid a lot of these like uh, uh, maybe misinformation and sort of things. Uh, there, there's also this rumor going around that it's pretty widespread that there's a, another far more lethal strain of the virus that, that apparently is um, like more lethal. Does that have any base or any rumors? Zero. Good. Zero okay. basis. Okay. Mm -hmm. I've looked at that. In fact, we talked about that recently. So uh, can, let me explain what's going on. So when uh, as these viruses re reproduce in hosts, coronavirus 2, their their gene sequences change all the time because they make mistakes when they make new viruses. Okay, so the the genome, the RNA of this virus has changes all the time. Many of those inactivate the virus, so we never see them. But some of them are neutral and they re, they maintain themselves in the population. And so, for example, uh, a virus comes into the U.S. from Wuhan. It has a certain pattern of mutations in its genome. And then that remains in the US. So you can trace where a virus came from. And these mutations mean nothing. 
paper was published uh, recently saying that there were now two lineages of two different kinds of sequences, which is not unusual. When a virus goes into different populations, it can diversify. And again, they don't have any consequences for the virus as far as we know. And they suggested that this could be a more lethal strain without any evidence for it. Mm. Right? And this happens all the time because people like this mutation scenario where they say the virus is going to mutate and get more lethal and so forth, which I already told you is, is really not grounded in any fact. And so that's what happened here. They suggested it and then it took off as a rumor. But there's a wonderful rebuttal on virological.org, which is a website uh, where you can find this short paper where they explain why, first of all, the methods that those authors used were flawed and their conclusions were unjustified. So I would say don't. there's no more lethal strain circulating. We still have essentially the same virus uh, as at the beginning in terms of, of what it's doing to Okay, us. that's awesome. And then one more would be um, the Spanish flu, which a lot of people are comparing this to in 1917 and 18, had a initial kind of like, uh, let's say like a outbreak period in the first year and then came back eventually to kill off 20% of the earth right next year. So is there a larger fear of this coming back next year into a, a massive outbreak potentially? And, and in that same way, are we just going to be closing schools and doing this every year? Like what, what, what do you, what do you think about that? Isn't that's another really big concern. So I think this virus is uh, with humanity to stay. It's going to be uh, infecting us for quite a while because it's so efficiently transmitted and silently. It's hard to, limit the outbreaks. And so what's happening, I think in the next year, we're going to see vaccines and antivirals developed. So if there's an outbreak next year, we'll be ready. We can vaccinate people. And you think it'll be in time? Them. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I, well, maybe not a vaccine because um, a vaccine will take, you know, two years probably to get online. But I think antivirals are, there's some that are being tested right now, which have been around for a couple of years already, and they could be useful. But uh, this is what we said earlier, we, we should have been ready for this. All this should have been done and uh, we'd be better prepared. But we I do think that future that. outbreaks are not going to be uncontrolled because we'll have ways to uh, prevent infections. So we will talk about what we maybe should have done. I, I know that's a, I'm sort of leaving some of the more controversial topics for sure. once we cover the basic facts, but we have a lot of time. Mm -hmm. uh, Vincent is going to be with us uh, for over an hour still. Um, which gives us time to get into some of that. Uh, but talking about viruses as well as anti, I'm sorry, vaccines as well as antivirals, what is, um, uh, I have some friends who work in different parts of the medical industry, pharmaceuticals. What are the options for speeding some of that up? For example, in a really <clears throat> lethal scenario, you might choose to take more risk uh, in, uh, using drugs or vaccines before their safety is perfectly known. Um, what are there options to move more quickly if this were to be very bad and widespread? Well, so this is an interesting thing we can talk about. Um, first, I think we we have two categories of patients. We have seriously ill patients in hospital. Yes, and for there, I think you can use things that maybe are not approved. So there is a drug, um, remdesivir, which was originally developed uh, for Ebola virus and has been since shown to have some efficacy against MERS and SARS-1. And that's being tested in China 
and it is not licensed, but you can get it. You can get the FDA to approve its use on what we call compassionate use. So if someone is in the hospital seriously ill with infection, confirmed infection with COVID-2, you can apply to the FDA, though within 24 hours, approve your request and you can get the drug. It's made by Gilead Biosciences. And so there you can take risks because the patient's very ill and maybe, you know, without doing anything, the patient would die. However, in a healthy population, it's difficult to use something that has a risk associated with it. So you shouldn't take this drug and give it to an entire population where the virus is circulating because it hasn't been properly tested and it may have side effects that are actually worse than what you're trying to prevent. And so that's what drives the slow development of both vaccines and antivirals. You need to make sure they are safe because if you want to give them to healthy people, which is what we do for vaccines, vaccines. they cannot be harmful. And that's why, uh, you know, the arguments for not taking vaccines that many people have that they're not safe is, is really laughable because that's why it takes so long to get them out there because they're safety tested for many, many years. And that's why you can't have a vaccine in two months. It's just not possible. It's, it's going to take time, but eventually we will have one. Um, and so, so the I'm safety- always, go Yeah, ahead. go ahead, sorry. So, so, you know, and then we have vaccines and antivirals. So the antiviral is a drug, a small molecule of some kind that you find to inhibit virus. And you just have to make sure it doesn't injure the patient. Uh, it doesn't have side effects that are worse than the actual disease. So you have to have testing done to avoid that. And that also takes time as well. And in both scenarios, vaccine and antiviral, you have to be able to treat patients with the infection. Now we have plenty of them. Uh, We only have a a few drugs to test, unfortunately, but we have plenty of them. But let's say this outbreak ends in June in the US, and maybe at the end of the year, we have some vaccine and antiviral candidates how can we test them if there are no ongoing infections? This is what happened with Zika virus. We had an outbreak, a global outbreak. 12, 20 companies started making vaccines and antivirals. The outbreak went away, and now they're sitting in freezers because we can't test them for efficacy for preventing infection. And I'm afraid that's what we're going to get into here uh, with COVID-2 is that we'll have a bunch of vaccine and antiviral candidates, and we'll have to wait till the next outbreak to actually test them. Interesting. So then your your you're uh, explaining there that you actually think active identified cases could still go to zero globally because that's what would be required to be unable to test. Um, and so you, you think yeah. that's a possible scenario because again, most of the doomsday scenarios are that this will now be percolating around the globe at some level uh, for at least this year. So this depends on whether the infection is seasonal or not. And so that's, let's talk. That's a a great topic. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to get to that. Let's talk about Mm -hmm. seasonality. So many, many virus infections show seasonality. That is they predominate at certain parts of the year. Influenza is a great example, which in temperate climates like ours, where we have a winter and a summer, it predominates in the colder months. Uh, And so the, the question is whether COVID-2 displays any seasonality, right? The main outbreak started in China in the winter. It has spread to some countries where it's warm, but uh, the question is whether it goes away with the warm weather, which has been suggested by some to occur, but we don't know because we've never had this. 
virus before. SARS-1 wasn't around long enough to establish if seasonality played a role there. We do know that the the epidemic common cold uh, coronaviruses I talked about earlier, they show seasonality. So they, they tend to predominate like common cold viruses, rhinovirus, they predominate in the winter. And so if that's the case with SARS-CoV-2, then that means that sometime during the year, there will be winter somewhere, right? And those viruses will be circulating. So we could go there and do a, a clinical trial. Okay. If, there's, if there's no seasonality, it could be that, you know, the, the virus, the, the outbreaks silence everywhere, which doesn't mean there's not going to be any circulation of the virus still. It could still continue, but uh, it'll be harder to do a clinical trial. Now, now I should find. say that even though influenza is seasonal and rhinovirus common colds are seasonal, it's not to say that there are zero infections in the summer, right? You all know of summer colds, right? Yes. And there are some rare rhinovirus and influenza infections. They, they're thought to maintain the virus uh, till the next season in part. So that could happen with SARS-CoV-2. It could be here in the summer at very low levels so that we don't notice it, no serious cases, and then it what, starts again. What, um, uh, so, so we've had some certain like high level public officials and such say that like uh, the warmer it gets or the colder it gets, the more and less viruses in the air. Like what drives this behavior from viruses to be uh, uh, like that would make it more contagious in the winter or less? Well, it's a really good question. Um, I'm afraid that the research on it has been very limited. I'll tell you what we do know, and it's mainly for influenza, which is, you know, it's a influenza virus is big because it infects so many millions of people. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of research going on. That's what drives it. And so one series of studies have shown for influenza that what, what's best for transmission is low temperature and low relative humidity. And we think, well, the low temperature makes sense. We think the virus remains infectious longer when it's cold. If it's hot out, the virus particles dry out and they lose infectivity. But what's with the low relative humidity? Well, when you sneeze, you make all those droplets and aerosols that we mentioned earlier. And if the uh, humidity is low, they can travel farther and more efficiently transmit. In high humidity, those droplets absorb water and fall to the ground very quickly. That's one of the prevailing <coughs> hypotheses. Mm -hmm. So, uh, low humidity is good for transmission as, as, as well as uh, low temperature. However, the problem is that even in the tropics, influenza can be seasonal. And, you know, the tropics is hot most of the time and yeah. humid most of the time. So what is driving seasonality there? We don't know. Wow. It might be a different mode of transmission. But all we can say is here in the temperate climates, temperature and humidity are important. We don't know if that applies to the current coronavirus. So when you hear officials saying it should die out in um, warmer weather, they're making an assumption that this virus will display seasonality. We just don't know if that's true or not. I'm hoping it is. I'm hoping that by June this is done, but we don't know. Are there any cases of uh, major outbreaks in history that have just gone a year round? Of, 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 uh, of viral outbreaks, yeah. Well, I can't go very, I can't go as far back as you would like me to, uh, but there are always examples of outbreaks happening in sort of the wrong time. The 2009 influenza uh, swine pan flu pandemic, if you remember, started in a weird time of the year, which was not the right season. So 
I think if you have enough virus present at any time of year, you can have uh, an outbreak that breaks the rules, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Wow. So this has been uh, incredibly interesting. Since we're halfway through, I'll take a second and just uh, say uh, I'm very proud of uh, all the people in chat here. They've actually talked about, um, they're very informed talking about the use of different antivirals off label. And we have people in chat who obviously have backgrounds in pharmaceutical or medical expertise. Uh, it's very nice to see everyone here. Thank you for being here. Um, I'm Ethan Evans. I'm your host. Uh, I work for Amazon. I run Twitch Prime. But uh, today, I'm not speaking for Amazon or Twitch. I'm interviewing Dr. Vincent Racaniello, who is a professor of microbiology and immunology at Columbia University in New York. Um, we've been putting his information up in chat. And uh, my co-host is my frequent uh, partner in streaming, Devin Nash, who's up painfully early um, out of his video game, uh, Enclave. Um, and uh, both Devin and I live in the greater Seattle area where um, we have a lot, comparatively at least, a lot of cases uh, for the US and I've been sent home from work. So I'll be, well, when we end this stream, I'll actually be transitioning immediately to a work meeting not surprisingly about how we're learning to work from home collectively in the presence of uh, the, the desire to do so, to minimize the spread. Um, so Vincent, uh, can you just take a terminology break for a minute? You use the term SARS-2, SARS-CoV-2, and then the disease COVID-19. Um, I think I follow those, but can you just briefly explain how the virus and the disease are named so that uh, people can understand the media about them and our discussion. Yeah, this is important because it's still, uh, I see it misused in the mass media. So the virus has been called SARS-CoV-2, SARS Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, which was the disease first observed in the original SARS from 2003. So that virus was just called SARS-CoV. I suppose it'll be now SARS-CoV-1. Although, you know, there is a there is an organization called the International Committee for the Taxonomy of Viruses, ictvonline.org, I believe, and they they are responsible for approving all virus names. You can't name your own virus; it has to go by the ICTV. <laughs> that sucks. <laughs> That's awesome. It's a very interesting group, and I'm I, I'm in contact with some of the members, and always have interesting discussions. So they wow. Um, I think they, they don't agree with all the nomenclature. So WHO has caused this disease, uh, COVID-19, which stands for Coronavirus Infectious Disease, 19 meaning 2019 when it was first observed. Oh. And that's I thought a little... it meant the 19th disease. So that's, that's no, a great no. clarification. Thank you. Well, it's, I'm, I'm not particularly enamored of this because now the virus and the disease have different names. I really liked SARS-CoV originally because you have the disease SARS, severe acute respiratory syndrome. So it was caused that it was called SARS before we knew what the virus was. Right. And then they simply say, okay, it's a coronavirus. So they put SARS-CoV, which is perfect because now you get both the disease and the virus name in one Package. word. So yeah. this one now has two, which is because the WHO stepped in and called it COVID-19. So I, I think it may change at some point. 
Um, we'll see. But for now, SARS-CoV-2 is the virus. COVID-19 is the disease. And so you have to be careful. I mean, I don't know if people care, but you know, I've criticized my university for using the, the terms inappropriately. Um, they talk about the spread of COVID-19 in a community. They really mean the spread of the virus, not the disease, right? And so I think you should, you should adhere to the nomenclature as, as much. That, may, that way your conversations are at least a bit clearer, so there's no confusion over what you're talking about. We need better marketing around this virus, man. Like if, if I could name viruses, it'd be like the Undertaker or the Boomer Stomper <laughs> or something, man. That'd be sweet. Yeah, some <laughs> viruses have uh, interesting names, but you know what's... Um, some sometimes you name a virus uh, be according to where it's isolated, but uh, some places don't want to have a virus named after them, right? Yeah. And I, I have a great mm -hmm. example for you: a virus emerged in the Four Corners regions of the U.S. in the early '90s. Hantavirus. Yeah. Hantavirus, and they originally called it Muerto Canyon virus because that's where it was first isolated. And the people who lived there said, "No, we don't want a virus." named after our town it'll kill tourism <laughs> isn't Hanta like insanely real like di didn't they have to quarantine a town for that like it kills like a huge number of people well it didn't it didn't actually kill all that many people the number of cases have been uh, minimal uh, yeah because well we can I'm, i'll talk about that in a second but then they ended up calling the cdc finally after a couple of tries named it Nombre virus kind of a joke right okay you don't want us to call it after your town we'll call it no name virus mm -hmm. and so that's what it is it comes from rodents from mice who shed the virus the mice are infected they're fine they can live with the virus but then when people encounter rodent excreta either urine or feces they inhale the virus and it causes this really serious respiratory infection and that's why i always tell people if you have rodent droppings in your house um don't sweep it up because you're going to aerosolize it. Spray it to wet it and then vacuum it or something, but don't don't make an aerosol. So that's how that spreads. And um, so virus nomenclature is um, can be weird because, as I said, people don't want it named after. But in some cases, we do have like the Ebola viruses are named after their river uh, where they were first uh, near near where they were first discovered the Ebola River. Interesting. I didn't know I didn't that. Know any either. of this stuff? That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Mm -hmm. This uh, it's become virus trivia for a second. So, uh, Vincent, I'd love to give you the platform for a minute. What do you think is um, one of the most common misconceptions we really need to clear up that we haven't talked about? In other words, I know you're very passionate about virus education. What do you think we haven't talked about that you would love the listeners and the future viewers of of this show to know that we haven't already covered or you think is important now you're talking about this particular this particular or? virus yeah this I, particular. I think covid 19 this this virus and disease there are a number of things which uh i think most people don't know and you know one thing i saw a few weeks ago was that People thought coronaviruses were new. They said, have we known about these viruses before? And um, of course, as I said earlier, they've been around for a long time. Another person uh, didn't really know that you could get a, viruses from animals. You know, in this case, we think the virus originated in bats. And I want people to understand that, again, as I said earlier, every virus we have came from an animal at some time or other, a non-human animal. And as we, as our population grows, uh, 
and we encounter uh, anim animals more and more, we're going to have more of these incidences of viruses from animals, whether it's a mouse or a bat or some other kind of animal. Pigs can give us uh, influenza viruses, for example. Probably uh, dogs will be giving us influenza viruses in the future. Uh, we get our infections not only from each other for the established human viruses, but also from animals. And that's something we have to uh, to deal with. But I think the most important misconception, and you know, I don't understand why people are, are getting so panicked about this particular virus. Um, I think the press has a lot to do with it because they're reporting numbers frequently, they're reporting closures and people are getting scared. Why are things closing? What's, what's going on here? Uh, the most important thing is that it's not as bad as you think it is. Um, you know, people are going to die. And I, I posted on Facebook a few weeks ago the statistics that it's mainly older people who have the serious infections. And some older people posted, that doesn't make me feel any better. I understand that. Uh, some people will die of this infection. But the majority of cases are mild. And the majority of people who are dying of the infection are older with health issues. And most of the population, younger people who are healthy, are going to have a mild infection. And at some point, it's going to be resolved. It's going, we're going to have population immunity that will stop spread. And in the future, this won't be an issue. But the real issue is that this will keep happening. Yeah, that's happen. what I want to talk about. <laughs> yeah. uh, so yeah. when, and, and when you say this will keep happening, I guess, Devin. Uh, well, I mean, the, the big thing is like, I basically feel like we are inevitably rolling towards a future where there will be a pandemic that kills like a fourth of the earth and there's nothing we can do about it. Is that right? I don't think that's true. I think we're going to have a series of small ones, although this is global, so it's not so small. I think we're going to have a series of, of, of pandemics where the virus is very efficiently spread. It's not lethal. Uh, and uh, that's going to be an issue as, as well. I mean, you're not going to kill off most of the world's population. I mean, you that's know, cool. among the more lethal viruses, Ebola viruses, Nipah virus, uh, Hendra, those do not spread very well uh, among people. And, you know, during the last Ebola outbreak, the big one in West Africa, you know, there are 25,000 plus cases. People were freaking out globally that it was going to spread. It, it just doesn't. It doesn't spread very well. So, I don't think that scenario is is plausible, but I do think having a, a serious outbreak like this one every 10 years is also a big issue and that we need to be better prepared for it. We can be prepared, uh, but we're not for this one. So I know you want to talk about that and we'll go to that next. I am curious. Um, you've made a sweeping statement. Uh what prevents us? We have higher population density. We have more old uh, folks who are, we have people who are living longer, which creates a, a larger potentially susceptible or diminished immune response population. What prevents us from a black plague, which supposedly did kill about a third of Europe, a third of people? Um, is it just time? Like, in other words, you're saying that might happen in a thousand years, but it's unlikely now? Or do you believe that modern society is proof against something like that? Well, I, I do think that the, advance, the advances uh, in medicine and science and public health that have occurred since those days of the Black Plague 
are substantial. I mean, there was essentially no medicine and no sanitation and no sanitation. You know, medicine is a relatively new field. The idea that you can use science to inform how you treat a patient and you have to do certain things and practice, you know, at one point we didn't even wash our hands before surgery because we didn't think it was important. (laughs) So we have advanced substantially. uh, And so I, I have confidence that all of that would prevent another black plague, another uh, influenza of 1918 and so forth. So you, um, I just, I, this is really important because I've literally lived my entire life <laughs> and it's probably not like a week that goes by. It's like, huh, I wonder what I'm going to die from that epic flu coming. You're, 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 you're saying that a, a global pandemic, like something that rivals 1918 Spanish flu wipes out 20% of the earth. That is unlikely. I think it's unlikely. You can wow. find people who will say it's going to happen. Yeah. You know, because we lots of people. (laughs) Yeah, you can find them, and there you can find very uh, intelligent academics and researchers who will say it could happen as well. I think it's unlikely um, because of the the public health infrastructure that we have. We have the ability to respond, even though you know, in this case, there have been some missteps. I think overall, uh, the the countries of the earth can come together and, and stop something. In this particular situation, even if it's an overall 3% fatality. Um, if it were 50 or 80, maybe there would be, I think there would probably be more response. So mm-hmm. I, I don't see that something would emerge that would do that because in part, it doesn't make sense for a pathogen to just kill uh, all of its hosts, right? Because then it can't find new ones to, to spread to. I think evolution dictates that you have uh, pathogens uh, emerging that can transmit efficiently and not kill every one of its you, hosts. You had mentioned that before. That was actually something I wrote down. But um, basically what you had said was, uh, I, I think Ethan or I had asked the question um, that, that can the virus mutate to become more lethal? Um, it, it, and this is, I, this is maybe a kind of like crazy question, but um, implying that the virus is uh, mutating in a direction to be more easy to be transmissible and if it already has that uh is is, it's not going to become more deadly because that would be ineffective towards this evolutionary uh trajectory implies that there is some sort of evolutionary intelligence to these viruses that that, that's moving it forward in a certain direction and not just random chance where it just becomes a more lethal strain is that the case i realize this is an incredibly deep question but like no i i totally get it and yeah the problem is that i'm a human looking at this and i'm anthropomorphizing it right Mm-hmm. And we can't do other because viruses have no memory. They have no thoughts. Right. They're just yeah. reacting. And so we are we are drawing from our own logic. But I, I don't want to imply that there's any you know, consciousness to what is happening here. All no, we I, can I, do I, yeah, is look at, at what we've seen. And the mm-hmm. fact is we've never seen a virus becoming more virulent as it passes through the human population. But the only the only thing that makes sense to me is it becoming more transmissible. And by the way, for this SARS-CoV-2, that must have happened very early on in the outbreak for it to be like this, because the bat virus that it uh, which it has an ancestor with is not transmitted well among people. We don't see it among people. So somewhere a mutation emerged that allowed good transmission. And, you know, if we can find that, that would help us understand and learn for future situations but now it's transmitting very well so there's there's no selection to transmit better it doesn't have to be can always find a new host therefore it doesn't need to transmit any better i understand that a lot of people won't like that logic 
but this is a really transmissible virus. So there's no evolutionary pressure for that to change because it's already adequate. That's the way I look at it. If it were poorly transmissible, and here's an example that's informative. So MERS coronavirus in the Middle East, in the Arabian Peninsula mainly. That virus goes from a camel to a person and then a few other people, and then it fizzles out because it doesn't transmit very well. And we are waiting for a mutation to arise that now let, lets that virus transmit effectively in people. We haven't seen it yet since 2013. And so it could still happen. And if it did, we'd be seeing it in real time, which would be very instructive, but it hasn't happened yet. And you have to ask, well, why doesn't it mm -hmm. happen? Maybe the virus structure is not compatible with that. However, this SARS-CoV-2, that mutation did occur, or those mutations occurred a while ago. Now it's a great transmitter. And in that property, it need not get better. It need not get more lethal. That will not help. You see, that what I really believe is that, and beliefs shouldn't be part of it, but what I yeah. really understand is that transmission is what drives evolution of a virus. Okay, that th needs to find a new host. Is what we ha have to be afraid of then the more lethal viruses that are not yet transmissible, such as Ebola? Well, that's what some people feel is, mm -hmm. is a real issue. Um, if Ebola became airborne transmissible, say that was brought up a number of years ago, what would happen? And if it maintained that lethality, that would uh, really be bad. That would be scary. Um, yeah. But it, you know, that has not happened in outbreaks for many, many years of Ebola. The other virus where people worry about that is avian influenza. And this is a virus that infects chickens and other uh, birds. They kills many of them and occasionally it gets into people and it's highly lethal over 50 percent case fatality ratio wow. but it doesn't transmit <laughs> at all oh well between God. humans and so people say well what if that uh, evolves into a more transmissible virus so sure that is a concern but and again in the 50 years we've been following these avian influenza viruses that hasn't happened however you can be ready if that happens, you can well, be ready. Let's, let's give you the platform to talk about that. So you've said a few times throughout our, our last hour or so. That we can prepare. Yeah, I'm yeah, very and, interested. And that we have yeah. not. So, yeah. mm -hmm. um, and I also saw that on your blog, uh, a little bit of commentary about how we could have prepared more since the time of SARS-1. Um, what would you like to say about that to educate the audience uh, and what we should do for the future, no matter how COVID-19 evolves? So first of all, let's just begin with Ebola and avian influenza. We know those are a potential threat because they're lethal. And if they acquired high transmissibility, that would be disastrous. Assuming that the lethality is maintained when the virus becomes transmissible, we don't know if that would be the case. Well, we have developed a vaccine for Ebola virus. There are a number of antiviral candidates that have been developed. And there are vaccines in development for avian influenza, just in case. So if an outbreak occurs, we're going to be ready with those reagents. Now, that has happened with a lot of coaxing. The Ebola vaccine, it was just licensed last year, by the way. So now, should there be an Ebola virus outbreak in the U.S., we have a vaccine to prevent it. That's great. That's incredible. The only reason yeah. that vaccine was developed was because... The military, the U.S. military funded it because they were worried about uh, service people going into areas and getting infected. So Really? That's drove, the only reason? 
That's the only reason. Oh, my God. It, it wasn't a U.S. problem. It was an, a problem in Africa. And so in our short-sighted vision, we didn't care about it. You know, I think my vision is that the world is one uh, population and we should all protect each other. But that's not how it works, as you know. So this vaccine only arose because of the military. And then it was brought to a point where there wasn't any more money to work on it. So they put it in a freezer. And then the outbreak in West Africa happened in 2015. And then they tested it. So that, that was great. And the avian vaccines are being developed because uh, the poultry industry is, is quite powerful uh, globally. Mm. Now, SARS, what, what should we have learned? SARS 2013, uh, 20, 2003, SARS-1. We learned that bats, uh, viruses from bats can infect us. And people since then studied, started studying viruses circulating in bats, not just in China, but in, in many other countries of the world. They found lots of SARS-like viruses with potential to infect people. Um, and so what should we have done? Well, I would say let's make a antiviral that could hit all of these, sorry, that could hit all of these SARS-like viruses. There are certain proteins in the virus that are very conserved, and we could easily have made uh, an antiviral that would inhibit any SARS virus that would emerge from a bat. It would involve isolating multiple SARS-like viruses from bats, studying the proteins, finding antivirals to inhibit them, and then testing those, get all the experiments ready. You could then do a, a safety trial in people, which is called a phase one, where you just put your drug in people and see if they're okay after it. And then when there's an outbreak, you could actually test the antiviral. We didn't do any of that. Why? The, the outbreak subsided. And because antivirals and vaccines are based, are mainly developed by for-profit companies, there's no interest in it. What, what is, is um, uh, sorry to interrupt, but this is probably important to your idea. Um, what, what are, what's like the WHO and like the uh, CDC, like what are they doing? Like, don't those guys have millions of funding? Like, are they are they doing it? universities? Is anybody working on this stuff besides giant companies? Well, WHO doesn't do any research. There are no labs. There are no labs at WHO. It's mainly a, a health organization that tries to coordinate activities globally. It does mm -hmm. a, a lot of good. Uh, it it can tell you what to do. So, uh, <laughs> last year they issued a very important statement saying we have to be ready for these 10 viruses and bacteria, by the way, these 10 top agents, we need to be developing antivirals and vaccines. And then they said the last one on the list is virus X. And virus X is something unknown in the future that we need to be ready for. And this SARS-CoV-2 is virus X, essentially. Wow. However, WHO simply said, we want this to happen. In the end, it's it's for-profit companies that have yeah. to do this. Mm -hmm. And so we have to change that model. So think about it this way. Our health, our well-being in terms of prevention of virus infection depends on companies that can make a profit. If they don't see a profit, That's they're it. not going to work on it. Mm -hmm. And so there, but there are, this is slowly changing. There are some nonprofit organizations. And one of them that comes to mind is called CEPI, C-E-P-I, CEPI.org. Uh, they raise money and they, they have raised $4 billion so far. And then they carry out the development of uh, antivirals and vaccines for viruses that no for-profit company wants to bother with. So they have a NEPA, several NEPA vaccines, for example, in development. And if there is an outbreak, they can be ready to move forward. And so that's what I think we should have 
been developing uh, antivirals at least. And you ask me, what are what are universities doing? What is the CDC doing? Well, again, the CDC um, is, is mainly involved in tracking and responding to outbreaks, and they do a very minimal amount of, of research. Uh, they can't develop uh, antiviral drugs uh, and vaccines. University labs couldn't work on it, and a number of very interesting labs have been working on coronaviruses. But again, you have to get funding for this. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the funding for most biomedical research in the U.S. comes from the National Institutes of Health, which has a limited budget, $35 billion. It sounds like a lot, but it's, that doesn't yeah, go very far. For all of the United States. Uh, and so if you, know, if you put in a proposal to develop SARS antivirals, it would not do well. It, and, that's, and that's the problem that we are faced with, is that is in the absence of outbreaks, these things are in the back of people's minds, and there's just a little trickle of uh, research so going on. That's really a, a short term problem, right? It's it's out of sight, out of mind is the simplest summary that when the outbreak is over, yeah, the profit right. motive is gone. And then the uh, the research money gets allocated to. Unfortunately, we have lots of pressing medical problems. And so it gets allocated sure, sure. to cancer or heart disease or something that's ongoing every day or something yeah, that they can just make money off of. Sounds that like. 35 billion of the NIH budget that covers all biomedical research. So it's in, you know, infectious disease is a fraction of that. Yes. And so we need to put more in that. I mean, if you compare the military budget, trillions of dollars, right? With that, I would argue that a virus should be considered uh, a threat, just as a foreign bad actor would be considered a threat. And we should put more money into it. Uh, than we are now. And in fact, the, the, the Department of Defense is funding more and more research into microbiology and virology because they recognize that, at least for their personnel, this is a threat. And I think that's great. But we really overall need to invest more. And we have to build an infrastructure where it's not necessary to make a profit to develop a life-saving antiviral or a vaccine. And since you touched on it, um, there are a few different things that maybe we can debunk quickly. Um, uh, there are some who have speculated that this uh, virus is man-made and escaped. Uh, yeah, containment. I really want to address that. Yeah, you <laughs> you've said several times it comes from bats, but of course that doesn't necessarily mean that someone didn't extract it from a bat, tune it up a little in a lab, and turn it loose to wreak havoc. Um, can you say a little? Uh, I believe though there's some emerging scientific evidence that points to that not being true. Right. So if you look uh, at the genome sequence of this virus, which was published uh, in January, it's 29,000 bases. It's a very long RNA molecule. We have the whole genome sequence. You can compare it to all the other known uh, SARS-like coronaviruses that we have. And there's a big database of sequence information that's publicly accessible. Uh, it's on PubMed here in the US. And so if you do the comparison, you find that the closest relative of this COVID-2 is a virus that circulated in bats back in 2013. So a sample was taken from a bat. There's a wonderful, a number of people are, are sampling bats in various locations and looking for viruses for obvious reasons. Uh, but there's a particular study funded in part by the EcoHealth Alliance, which is a nonprofit here in New York City, where they isolated uh, viruses from bats, and they, they publish their sequences. And so one of those small fragments 
turned up to be highly related to this new virus. So they didn't have the actual bat virus, but they had a small piece of sequence of the genome. They said this is the most similar to that virus, similar than, more similar than any other coronaviruses that we know of. And so then the, the researchers who were working in Wuhan went uh, and took, went back to their freezer where they had a little bit of the bat sample frozen. They determined the, the sequence of the rest of the genome. And you can see it's 96% identical to the virus that's now circulating globally. So that means that these two viruses share a common ancestor. We have no coronavirus in any lab that we know of that looks like those two sequences. So if someone were working on it, it's not something that we know of, but even more importantly, because you know people can have things that we don't know about in their laboratory. If you look at the sequence, it's not something that would have been engineered by someone. So the bat virus, as it as it exists, um, probably can't infect people very efficiently. Uh, what we think is it's lacking a certain a set of amino acids in one of the viral proteins. And that set is in the human virus, and it's clearly absent in the bat virus. And so people have said, well, that was engineered into the bat virus to make it infect humans. And I don't think that's likely because no one had that bat virus before. But even more importantly, that sequence, it's not something that you would have put in yourself. You wouldn't have thought to put that sequence in because you wouldn't have known that it would work. And so it's, it, that tells me and, and many other people that this was not engineered. This was selected for either in an animal or in early humans in Wuhan, perhaps in November, and was selected for to have this particular sequence. And the problem is that, you know, if you haven't been thinking about viruses and evolution for many years, it's not, it's not easy to understand this. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, so I, I look at the sequence and I say, yeah, there's no way that this could be engineered. No one would know to put this particular amino acid uh, sequence in here. But uh, for the lay person, it's easy. It doesn't. It's yeah. not sure. provable. The problem is, sure, uh, uh, you have great reason for scientific belief. But if I want to believe that some, uh, this you is know, the case with any expertise. I mean, it's, yeah, yeah. I deal with this all the time in my field with marketing. Um, so it, it, just just to sort of clear this at a high level, is it possible to actual bioengineer viruses for more lethality or trans or, or virulence or transmission? Is that actually something somebody could do in a lab, or is that even that is just like baseless? Well, you could. So those kinds of experiments are highly regulated, as you might understand. Sure. The, yeah, it's very hard to get them approved. Uh, the so the the short answer is, it's possible. Uh, I mean, I I can speak for labs here in the U.S. and you know what happens elsewhere, uh, you can't be entirely sure of. But here. Uh, in the US, uh, and, and this is an example that's instructive. So let me tell you a little bit about that. A number of years ago, so this question arises with the avian influenza virus. Why doesn't it transmit well among people, right? So a lab in, the, uh, in Wisconsin and another lab in the Netherlands decided to make this virus more transmissible in animals, in lab animals, right? Mm -hmm. And the, la the lab animal they use are ferrets, which are good hosts for influenza viruses. And what they did is they introduced a few mutations into the genome of the avian influenza virus, and it didn't transmit well among ferrets by air. They can do aerosol transmission experiments in the lab very easily. And so what they did was they started infecting a ferret, then after a few days, taking the virus out of the nose, and then infecting another one, and so on, making 
ferret to ferret infections. And in the end, they got a virus that could transmit very well by aerosol. And the, the world got very upset about that. And there was a lot of controversy saying you're going to infect the world with this virus. But it turned out when you made that virus transmit by aerosol, it completely lost its virulence for ferrets. Wow. So the, the, the lesson for me is that when you mess with viruses, when humans mess with viruses, we have no idea what to do. And so we made changes that made it transmissible, but it got rid of the virulence. And so nature in the end is the one that best does this, right? The evolution of viruses in nature best selects for things. I think transmission can be changed. I think when we do it, we mess up and, and we really never uh, end up getting that said. There could be somewhere in the world where someone could change a virus to do something uh, different. And you can imagine that bioterrorists might want to do that, but it's not easy. And there are far better ways to incite terror among people than to try and make uh, a virus. And so I would argue that that's not likely to happen. So awesome. in layman's terms, I was laughing because <laughs> I think paraphrased what you said is our protection for mad scientists right now is that we are too inept that maybe some brilliant future scientists could figure out how to do all this but we simply lack the knowledge of viruses to really engineer them for lethality and transmissibility and all the other things we'd want i think that's a fair assessment yeah people always ask me can you make a brand new virus could a scientist make it? and i and i laugh because no one knows knows how to do that we can only start with what's out there which has already been made by by selection in nature and i really don't think we could make anything from scratch we could make some <coughs> modifications but as as you pointed out they would mess up the the lethality yeah for that's sure. reassuring uh our our level we're not past our level of incompetence in in that field yet <laughs> so so um We've talked earlier, uh, but a lot of new people have come and gone. Um, Devin, we can go where you want next, but I'm wondering, we didn't really talk about what precautions people should or shouldn't take. We went item by item about quarantines and washing their hands and so on. But just going back to practicality for a minute, knowing what we know now, what would you advise viewers and listeners that they should or shouldn't do? go to school or not, uh, wash their hands or not. Face masks. Face masks yeah, or not, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess first at the top is if, if your school is closed, you should respect that, right? You shouldn't violate any kind of isolation of any sort. But if, if Columbia stayed open today, I would go and teach my class. Um, because I don't think that the risk is, is high for a class full of 20-somethings, right? And I'm, I'm personally willing to take the risk of going on the subway because I, I feel that there are some things you need to keep doing. Now, when I do travel on the subway, as I said, the first thing that I do is make sure I don't touch my nose and my eyes and my mouth with my hands unless I've washed them. Just I usually wear gloves here. It's winter, so it's okay to wear gloves and keep them away because the poles, as I said, are contaminated. Any public area uh, pub where lots of people go through, it's likely to be contaminated, and that's a good way to acquire, at least in theory, infection. So I would say have really good hand hygiene. And that's not just, you know, the things that 
may seem inconsequential. And, and I tell my class, you leave a restaurant and there's a bowl of mints near the cashier. Don't touch it. They're contaminated. There's no question that they're contaminated because hundreds of people are putting their hands in there. Wow. And you just need one with poor hand hygiene to contaminate. Don't touch my any of those candy. common things. You've ruined my free candy. Dude, I have a we, sweet tooth. Wait, and you've can, ruined can we have a really brief conversation about bathroom doorknobs, man? Because this drives me crazy. Oh my God. This is probably like a this like 10% of my life is like calculating the trajectory of like where because what I do is I wash my hands with soap. And then I pull the what well, Ethan's got to let me have a little bit of this, okay? No, like, go like for it, man. Like okay, like I pull the the things, then I, I I take the paper towel, I crumple it up, I grab the door with the paper towel, and then I pull it out. And if somebody has anticipated my strategy, there's a trash can nearby, and I can yep. dispose of it, <laughs> and I can walk out. But sometimes the trash can is not in the trajectory of the of the doorknob, and then I have to like go either for a throw, or sometimes I go like a real awkward like lean. And I'm like, and I just toss it, and then I and I go out. But this is super important to not touch bathroom door doorknobs. Yeah, I, I think you're right, and that's that's. Yeah. I always think of that because you wash your hands and then you touch the doorknob, and we should have automatic door openers, right, where you could open it with your foot. Um, that's why in in operating rooms they have foot pedals to control the water. You don't have to touch it with your hands, right? So and we have a ways to go, but you can don't touch your face and until you. You know, clean your hands afterwards. And is it true that those bathroom blowers? Oh, I have to know this. Oh my God, this is so important. the The bathroom <laughs> blower that ha that that's like, you know, that thing. Does that make it worse? Because some people have said yeah. that it does. Unfor unfortunately, it aerosolizes everything on your hands. And if you haven't washed really well, right, you have to wash thirty seconds with soap and water. And most people don't. I, I often look at people, and most people just put water on for five seconds then you're going to aerosolize whatever's on your hand. And people have done studies to show that, you know, they have, they have put harm, harmless viruses on people's hands and shown that you make a huge cloud of virus particles. Oh with my those. So those are, God. those are really <laughs> bad. Oh Devin's going to be crossing his legs and never going to a public bathroom again. Now I'm going to walk you, around in the giant bubble suit, dude. I'm, so, you know, you they used to have, <laughs> they used to have those blowers that pointed up into your face and some, some yeah. bathrooms still have them. Yeah. At least now I've noticed some of them are pointing down, which is marginally better, but still it's an so issue. Yeah, but the, of course, the ones where you dip your hands in this way, it's blowing it right up on. I Wow. Awesome. Yeah, right. It is. I would avoid those if walk out with your hands wet if you need to, but, uh, wow. and you know, yeah, I'm vibing pure, so hand, hard with you right now. The hand sanitizer, you know, it, it's not perfect, but there, if you have a, a bottle of it, after you touch the doorknob going out, you could then uh, wash your hands again with that. I think that can be uh, somewhat effective. Yeah, but and I, I'll share a story because people are asking about masks and stuff. Mm -hmm. I have an acquaintance who works in a in an urgent care clinic, and they actually, um, this is like bad behavior around uh, fear driven by fear in the greater Seattle area. They actually had to take the hand sanitizer and masks out of the lobby because people were coming in who were not even visiting the clinic mm. and helping themselves to it so they could have them at home. So uh, we were talking a little bit about um, the, the things people should do to keep themselves safe in a fearful society with limited supplies, people are doing very dangerous things because now you have a, a clinic where they see people, of course, with all kinds of things. And here in Seattle, it very uh, obviously could be someone with COVID-19. 
and they've had to pull the supplies that you would normally use to reduce infection. Um, and that's like overreaction to fear and obviously unethical behavior. So please don't do that. People would like to know about masks. What We haven't talked about that topic and it's hotly debated in 95 respirators and surgical masks and so on. Okay, so um, I think masks really work well when healthcare personnel are using them because they know how to work with them. They know how to wear them. They know how to dispose of them properly. And, you know, a mask falls under what we call PPE, personal protective equipment. And just as important as putting it on and making sure it fits properly is taking it off without contaminating yourself. I see a lot of people, they take off their mask and they let it sit on their chest. The outside, you know, the mask is contaminated. Now it's contaminating your, your shirt or something. So I think when a healthcare person has, has you wear it, it's to protect them from the healthcare personnel from getting infected. They know how to put it on you. They know how to dispose it afterwards. And studies have shown that on, under correct usage, masks can inhibit the spread of, say, influenza virus. We don't know anything about the, the current SARS-CoV-2, but because it's spread in droplets, you assume that the droplets are hung up in the mask and that would reduce transmission. Uh, the CDC does not recommend that us on the street use masks. They say it's appropriate for healthcare personnel, but not everyone should use it. And I think that's in part because not everyone knows how to wear them properly. And therefore they give you a false sense of security and maybe you don't wash your hands as well because you think you're wearing a mask and, and that'll be okay. This, this always confused me real quick about uh, the, these CDC recommendations. They have a similar recommendation for things like HSV one and two, where they're like, I ah, just don't worry about it. Right. Like, but that's like a really weird thing. It's like, why would you want to get exposed to a, um, a virus if there's some degree of like prevention that you can do? HSV one and two are all infected in our first few years of life. So yeah. mm -hmm. once you're infected, that's it. You've got it the rest of your life. Right. Right. So mm -hmm. at least the, um, the uh, oral forms and then, you know, they're sexually transmitted versions, which uh, you can get later. But uh, so that there, that's an example where it doesn't make any difference for sure. But, but uh, you can I, transmit I, it to new people. Right. So, so that's why I, well, I was most, drawing most the comparison. people are infected. So most, right. you know, herpes simplex mm -hmm. one, most adults, over 90% of adults are infected. They were infected at a young age. So, mm -hmm. you know, there are very few people who have never been infected with that particular virus. So it really doesn't help to do prevention at that point in time. Um, but my understanding mm -hmm. is the masks can work under certain situations and research has shown that most of the time they're not used properly. And so that's, Part of the reason why they're not recommended and we just don't have enough to go around right now you know stores are charging a premium for them and uh, i don't think that I mean, if you have a mask and you want to wear it we can't stop you but make sure you wear it properly and you have to dispose of it properly as well it's contaminated material so uh, i'm not sure you know no one knows in the context of a large outbreak if everyone wore a mask what would it do we don't have any of that type of study therefore we can't uh, make conclusions about the efficacy. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I say to people, you, if you feel better wearing a mask, I see plenty of people walking around wearing face masks. And I usually, at any time of the year, there's always someone somewhere wearing a mask. Some people have, you know, respiratory or other ailments that make it better if they wear a face mask or a surgical mask, for example. Um, 
but uh, this time of year there are more. Although now, in the subway, I notice a lot of people wearing gloves. That's something new. Um, <laughs> but I think you're you're better off uh, washing your hands. Uh, that you can control. The face mask, of course, is because you really can't control inhaling these droplets if you're close to people uh, who are are producing them. And so that gets to the point of reducing the, the numbers of people that get together. That's really a good way to do that, uh, not have large groups of, of individuals so you wouldn't have that issue. And we did cover that some earlier. Um, <clears throat> when you say reducing large numbers of people to get together, but you also say you would go teach your class, mm -hmm. what constitutes a large number? I mean, I guess we're defining super basic terms here, but what is a large number and what is together? Because many people would argue you teaching a class of 30 or 40 or 50 people seems like that. Um, how do you think about that? Well, our university has said anything over 50, you shouldn't do. Okay. Um, although that was before the class. Now all classes are canceled. So their policy is any group of, even if it's a 10 student class, you shouldn't hold it to try and minimize transmission. I, I definitely understand your university's policy, and I get that you're you're uh, hewing to that. I'm sort of asking, based on your expertise, what what do we know or think about? Uh, you know, there's this new concept that I've never heard before. Of, I'm sure it existed called social distancing, but I'm trying to get a, a feel for: is there any actual basis in science other than stay away from people as much as you can? Um, a way to, I, yeah. I don't think we can give you the studies that would really support that. I mean, there years ago, there were some studies done with rhinoviruses because we can't infect people intentionally with most viruses and study this sort of thing, right? So ideally, you could infect people with a virus and put them in a room and see how the transmission works, right? And that was done years ago with common cold rhinoviruses where they would put people uh, in a room and they would have them play cards. And one of the persons was infected, confirmed to be infected with rhinovirus. And the card playing, just touching the cards alone was enough to transmit the virus to others because you would get mucus on the cards and then other people would pick it up and then they touch themselves and, and spread it. But there's also a, a, a component of aerosol transmission. They would have one person who didn't touch any cards and they still uh, got infected. But that's, you know, one virus in one setting. and you know, from those and similar limited studies, we say, okay, we know the virus is transmitted in these droplets. So it makes sense to keep large numbers of people away. If you look, if you think about a classroom setting, you're in pretty close rows, right? And so that's close enough for these large droplets to transmit amongst one another. There are also common surfaces on the chairs that you touch and you could get contact transmission as well. So all these restrictions are based on those limited studies and whether they work, they're not, it's not a controlled study. So we really don't know. I mean, if we close all the schools in New York and then the, the outbreak goes away, then people are going to say, ah, closing the schools help, but we don't actually know that. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's not right. a controlled study. Yeah, it's you... not, it's correlation versus causality, exactly. which we, we could probably do a whole show on the debate of what is correlation <laughs> and what is causality. Well, well, these, these probably like, beyond the scope. These have enormous economic implications, right? Completely. Do, yes. Yeah. And, and we have, I mean, we've seen the market tank 
uh, I don't know. I, I was watching it on open. It was like, 2000. Oh, geez. Yeah. They, yeah, they froze was... the markets, which is never a good sign when, yeah, when the market the, stops the... trading. Cause the, yeah. cause the, the, they, they call a shutdown. Yeah. That's actually super scary. So, um, yeah, these are, these are enormous economic. I mean, I can't even imagine just in the local area, Ethan, that we're in, like how, what the, the, Oh, the economic impact. Yeah, yeah. it's unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Devin and I did a show a few days ago with um, Twitch's director of data science, who is a professor from Duke on leave uh, in finance. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can't go into that whole show here. Uh, but the the economic impact uh, is all over the place. Um, it's almost unfathomable. South by Southwest being canceled in Austin with a reported cost to the city of Austin of $350 million. Um, I mentioned earlier, I work for Amazon, my whole team, as well as uh, Amazon in Seattle is trying to work from home. Uh, We're learning how to work from home um, because we're conducting an experiment uh, I guess as a, as a scientist, Vincent, uh, you know, we're, we're experimenting in business in an unprecedented way driven by this uh, virus in experimenting how to send hundreds of thousands or millions of workers home. Uh, and uh, we've been talking online recently about how that may transform the way society lives and works, tying it back to something uh, that you might want to comment on. Um, this is a case where the virus may change society through its secondary effects. Um, where have we seen that before where, where human behavior adapts around a disease or around a virus? I think any major uh, infectious disease outbreak has changes on society. This is not the first one. Um, for many people, it's their first, but you know, in countries affected by Ebola, it has major changes on uh, the way people live. Uh, in, in the old days, smallpox, you know, many, many years ago, had huge effects on society. You know, the, the Americas didn't have any smallpox. It was brought there by the European colonists, and they devastated native populations as a consequence, made a big change in the, the balance of power in the new world. But that's um, a great that's a great example. Yeah, um, it is. Yeah, it's incredible. Uh, it, you know, it's not Probably a positive. Well, none example. of these are going to be positive <laughs> yeah. examples because no, basically no. the way viruses change society is by killing people and creating fear, neither of which are positive. Can I, can I ask a, a question? Um, yeah. Um, you've been researching these for so long and, you know, you've got a, a freaking uh, someone had mentioned you've got a virus throw pillow. So I know you're really serious about this. Uh, uh, yep. technically a macrophage by the way Devin. the, the chat is very specific okay. about that yeah um what's your what's your thought on these just overall i think like in terms of their uh their presence as they live with us in society i i, I mentioned a particular fascination in viruses that live with you forever and then they have these these and you can't clear them and and, and the um, I wish I could have a whole separate conversation with you about those. Cause those are one of my big fascinations. Like there's like eight or nine of them that just like sit in most human beings and they do whatever. And we have no idea what they do. What, why did, why did these co-evolve with us? Um, do, do they have, do they have some kind of, uh, um, intelligence is such a, I know like a, like a loaded word, but, um, what's their deal and, and your fascination with them? Like, how did that come about? So viruses have been, 
with us since the evolution of cellular life. Mm -hmm. As soon as cells evolved, so did viruses to uh, infect them. Uh, and this is a good, a good quote from one of my podcast colleagues. It is, successful systems attract parasites. That goes from biology up through all aspects of society, right? Mm. If you make a lot of money, you're going to have parasites who want to take it from you. Cells <laughs> arose, successful cells arose that could live. Viruses came and infected them. But I think, so that we have co-evolved. Life, multicellular life, all sorts of animals and so forth have evolved with viruses infecting them. So they have shaped each other. The viruses have shaped the animals and the, the kinds of hosts that are available shape the viruses that are around. And in fact, by, by looking at genome sequences of viruses and hosts, you can see a continuous conflict between one and the other, where the virus infects the host. The host changes in a way to avoid it, and then the virus changes back again. This, this happens continually. We're just starting to get some insight into this. But the vast majority of infections don't seem to hurt us, as I said earlier. We have lots of viruses in us at any given time that are apparently not harmful. In fact, the blood supply is full of viruses that we think are harmless because if we threw out every pint of blood because it had a virus in it, we would have no blood supply. Mm. So when you get blood, you're not getting HIV or West Nile or polio virus, but you're getting other stuff that doesn't hurt you. And, and the idea is now emerging and has been for some time that some of these are actually beneficial. Some of these viruses really? may, in fact, help us. And there's some experiments in, in mouse models that suggest that. There's certainly great examples in plants where viruses uh, can be beneficial. And so I think the, a really interesting area of research in the next 10 years or so is going to be to figure out exactly what they do that, that helps us. And so you can even see that you know, a certain percentage of our DNA is viral. Uh, we acquired infections hundreds of thousands of years ago before we were homo sapiens. We still have them. They don't make viruses, but our, our host has taken a lot of the viral genes that came in and used them for good purposes. And you know, may know but we're that borrowing, we're part virus. We are borrowing genes from the viruses that infect us. Absolutely. And I one feel gene very that, powerful now. <laughs> one gene that is used to construct the placenta is actually a viral gene. Whoa! It, it infected our ancestors many, Whoa. many years ago, and it was exactly, it was taken, and in any animal, any mammal that has wow. a placenta owes it to a virus infection. And so this is an example of what I'm talking about, beneficial uh, viruses. I'm sure there are many more examples. And most people don't think of it this way. They think of a virus as something bad because that's what we think of, a virus infection causing us to be sick. But I think that's slowly changing. And I would like it, and if people remember anything, it is that most viruses are either neutral uh, or can be beneficial. That, can wow. I say one thing before Please. before yeah. I forget? Absolutely. So this idea, this idea of of quarantining people and isolating them, how do we know it works? I just saw the um, the other day someone sent a figure from an ongoing study. So they looked in China to see if other viral infections were on the decline because of the isolation uh, procedures that were in fact, right? And in fact, yes, you can see influenza going way down and some oh. other infections. I don't recall what the, the figure said at the, at the moment, 
but it seems to have a broader effect, which you would say it's working even in the absence of a control group. And you, you guys said earlier, you know, let's quarantine and see the effect. Well, you always have to have a group that can have free access to the world and move around to see what their infection rate would be to the quarantine group. But here coming out of China, it's an observational study that other infections are going down massively. So, you know, fewer people circulating, that's going to happen. But you can uh, actually see that possibly the, the isolation is working. But that's not a solution for society, right? It has to be a temporary thing because we need to move around eventually. Right. Yeah. But that that's a that's a great observation that changing our human behavior around this one virus uh, is is obviously once you think about it going to impact viruses with similar transmission. If the one works, yeah. If it works on one, it will work on several. Yeah. If they're transmitted by you know person to person contact, um, which many many viruses are obviously contact or short distances, then yeah, they should be impacted by the same procedure. So it's a very interesting study. Hopefully, we'll see it published soon. And uh, it's really. I will say, I'm amazed how fast information is circulating academically. Meaning the fact that you started this broadcast talking about a paper you had uh, that had been submitted, uh, I think, to the New England Journal of Medicine. Um, about life of the virus on surfaces, but I'm actually pleased and uh, I think it's positive how fast academia is sharing information. I'll turn that into a question. For those viewers um, and future listeners who may not want to read a virology blog as their source of information, is there anywhere in the, in the broader media you would recommend as trustworthy or dispassionate if I want to stay informed, where where might I reasonably go to do that? Um, that you would say is a is if not a perfect source, at least a good source for the for the average person. That's hard because you know I knew I it was you, hard. I, I if I if ask I you easy questions, <laughs> that's no fun. If I, if I tell so, there's you know academics has changed a lot in the last ten years, largely because of the internet, right? Everything used to take forever. You know, in the old days, uh, there was no communication whatsoever, and it was slow. Then we developed science journals, but, you know, you would submit a paper. It would take weeks and weeks to get reviewed, and then it's published in a very uh, closed journal, which most people can't read. And now we have most of the journals online, and there's this preprint server called BioArchive, where uh, scientists can put their manuscripts before uh, they're published. And so this has been applauded. And I think it's great because more people can see the science. And that's always been one of my driving uh, motivations for, for all the things I do is to have more people see the science that we do out there. And so uh, BioArchive is uh, a repository. And you can go and see some of the papers that are in review and it will eventually appear in Nature and Science and so forth. However, you can also get garbage there because people can post anything they want. There's no review whatsoever. And some things have been put there, for example, the early on in this epidemic saying that um, this new coronavirus is a, is a variant of HIV, which is totally wrong, but it was a paper on BioArchive saying that. So I think for people without much of a science background, it's really a, a chance that you will find something that you un both understand. And if it's not good science, uh, you won't be able to uh, tell that because you don't have the right and, training. And so I think, 
for the average audience, to be fair, I was a little bit more asking CNN or BBC or CDC website. Um, is there a mass media like where where would you recommend the average viewer who's not going to peruse scientific papers published or unpublished? Right. Okay. Might- so look, uh, the the news the news industry is a for profit industry. They are mainly interested in getting a lot of people watching. They sell advertising. And for that, I completely distrust all of them because I think they, they do things just to drive profits. So I don't think the news is a good source unless you're talking about a nonprofit news or, you know, NPR radio is great because they're not driven by profits. They used to, used to be a TV news show. Uh, so those sorts of nonprofit public programs are nice, but, um, I think WHO and CDC websites, every country, most countries have a CDC and they usually have a good website. The one in the U.S. has a lot of good information on it. Um, it's not perfect. Neither WHO or CDC is perfect. They've made a lot of missteps, especially in this outbreak. But I consider it to be a reliable source of information. If you want to know what to do in this outbreak, go to the CDC website and, and read what they say. That's what Great. I would do. I, I was I was hoping that would be your answer, but I didn't want to lead the I didn't want to yeah, lead yeah, the sure. witness. Um, so you've been very generous with your time. I recognize we've gone the two hours we originally discussed. Um, so I don't know exactly when you I know you have to go. Well, you have to go teach your now canceled class online, I believe. At some no, point. We had an exam today, so I have to figure out how to post an exam online on some uh, website that they can securely access. All right. <laughs> But I, um, I, I can stay for a while, whatever you'd like. Well, I, I I scheduled myself. I actually am working from home and have to go back to work here in about half an hour. Um, so given that we're, we probably will need to wind up, and I think we have covered a ton. Um, is there anything else? I asked you earlier about common misconceptions. Is there any other topic you'd like to share about as people think about uh this coronavirus outbreak and uh, uh, COVID-19 that we haven't covered. And then I'll give Devin a chance for any question he still has. I think something we didn't really uh, get into is when I said this would happen again and why, why is that so? And that's because we, these viruses come from animals, which harbor lots of viruses and bats, it turns out, harbor more viruses than uh, any other animals we know of. Uh, Bats constitute 20% of all mammals. They're huge. They're quite diverse and they live in many places. They have many viruses infecting them and they seem to be okay. They have lots of coronaviruses in them. They have Ebola-like viruses in them and many others. They seem to be fine and their their, uh, ability to withstand the, the demands of flight seems to have also made them better at dealing with virus infections. But the downside is that they shed these viruses and we get them when we contact them. And as our population expands, there are more and more opportunities for us to contact not only bats, but mice and any other uh, animals that might have uh, virus infections. And that we shouldn't leave out mosquitoes. Some virus infections are transmitted by mosquitoes. And as global uh, climate change proceeds the range of mosquitoes is increasing and the viral disease that's actually very scary i I know you're right and that's something that you know we could uh, mitigate to a certain extent 
but we choose not to pretty much uh, yet uh, there. That's a case where the mosquitoes take blood meals, right? And they pick up viruses and it inadvertently uh, give them to a, another host. And so they're an unwitting partner in this transmission scheme. So there are lots of ways that we can get infections. And if we don't, if we're not prepared by studying these viruses, putting enough effort into making preventatives, drugs, and vaccines, we're going to be hit with these epidemics over and over. And I don't want to say that one is going to emerge that's going to wipe out humanity, because I really don't think that, as we've said earlier. But, you know, a series of SARS-CoV-2-like outbreaks, it, not only does it kill a lot of people, but it's disruptive. It is uh, economically disruptive. We have to learn how to respond better and, and be more prepared. Uh, and I do think if there's one silver lining in this, um, governments and businesses around the world are not going to want a repeat of this scenario. You know, uh, just speaking, thinking about my own workplace, it's very disruptive for us. And so, um, and, and um, in, I understand there was actually a, a, a flu outbreak. I was born in 1969, right about when I was born, but mm -hmm. really nothing huge since then. The point being, this is unprecedented in my life. And it's certainly unprecedented in the lives of most viewers. Um, and so I do think there'll be societal evolution in how we address and think about uh, viruses, particularly if this spreads, right? We have dramatic government actions in several countries around the world. Chad is saying we haven't talked much about the spread of the virus in Europe, whether that's Northern Italy or in the Middle East and Iran where it seems to be on an exponential curve like happened in Wuhan. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I think the future responsiveness may change just because of the economic damage. Uh, you've said for-profit companies, where I'm tying this back is you've said for-profit companies don't invest in research most of the time when there's no money to be made. But now there's going to be the, they can sell safety from a repeat potentially. So there was a lot mixed up in that. Is there anything you would want to say, though, about what we're seeing on a world scale, whether it's in Iran or in other places where it seems cases are rising very rapidly, uh, at least as reported? Unfortunately, I don't share your optimism because I think as soon <laughs> as this is over, it is forgotten and it's mm. back to business as usual. And we do need <clears throat> fundamental sea changes that alter the way we develop these therapeutics to, because the companies will forget about it at the end of the year and they won't invest. They'll invest in heart disease or diabetes or cancer, and they won't make antivirals against SARS virus. We have to have a fundamental change in how we develop these therapeutics. And now's the time to start doing that when it's fresh in everyone's mind. But I'm afraid that by the end of the year, it'll be forgotten again. You know, as I said earlier, WHO tried to make an initiative. And there's been some change in this in this one nonprofit, I'm telling you, CEPI, which is really interesting. But we need more of that. And I'm, I'm just not convinced that once it's over, uh, we'll do that because it's over. That's it. We move on. We did that for SARS-1. You know, that was a, quite a serious outbreak, uh, although it did end. And that should have informed us. Uh, I hope you're right. I hope that something changes. But companies are not going to make uh, an antiviral or a vaccine against a, a virus that barely infects uh, anyone in, in the intervening period. We, here's a good example. We have a virus now that has caused outbreak of childhood paralysis, 
globally every two years, 2014, 16, and 18. We're expecting another outbreak in the fall of, of this year. It's a virus related to polio. It's not polio virus, but it causes a respiratory infection, a common cold, and then a very small fraction of the kids get paralyzed. Jeez. And they have limb, upper limb paralysis that they never recover. Wow. From. And so, you know, there have been less than a thousand cases of this paralysis in the U.S. in those three. And the question is, when do we develop a preventative? Yeah. And it's very difficult to get companies interested in that because there's so few cases. Yet, if you ask the parents of any of those paralyzed kids, they would say they would they would even support it. So, of course. Yeah. It's very difficult. I agree with you. There isn't going to be a lot of investment in that. Devin, I'll, I'll, give, um, I'll give the microphone to you if you, there's anything else you'd like to ask uh, Dr. Racaniello before uh, we, we let him go figure out how to post an online exam <laughs> and I go back to work from home. Is there I, anything? I mean, I have a thousand things, but I, I, um, I'll just keep <laughs> asking questions until Ethan stops me. Uh, does personal exercise and nutrition seem to have an effect on the immune system and the severity of illness in this in in, in any kind of case with influenza or viral infections? Uh, of course, we don't know in this case, right? But yeah, because it's too early to tell. The conventional wisdom is that yeah, the healthier you are, the more able you are to resist infections of any kind. Mm -hmm. However, then we see apparently healthy people who are wiped out by a viral infection, and that. Uh, brings up the fact that everyone's genetically different. And we're just beginning to learn that changes in certain genes actually make you uh, more susceptible to serious disease. And there are just a few labs working on this uh, globally. They'd like to know, what is it, is it about that person's genetic makeup that makes them uh, more susceptible? But the things you mentioned, certainly being overall healthy and having a good diet and good good parameters and so forth, um, there's there's some evidence that that's useful and that that becomes useful because it's stimulating a good robust immune response. Uh, so I, if you have bad habits, right? If you were uh, if you if you if you never exercise and you have uh, toxic habits and overeat and so forth, this is increasing your susceptibility to infectious disease. That we certainly know. Are there any particular supplements like vitamin D or C or zinc or anything that have been shown to have some kind of effect on, on virus infection or, or, or reducing it? And then furthermore, is, uh, does these sort of homeopathic memes like Sambucol and stuff like that, does that have any basis in reality for being able to help infections? Because I like whenever I feel sick, I like take cayenne pepper and lemon, and then I sort of like imagine it helping. <laughs> I'm that guy. <laughs> so... Uh, you can either help me or dash my dreams in two seconds here. Well, I think it's, it is possible that some of these things may help, but, you know, carefully controlled studies uh, haven't been done. Mm -hmm. um, it, you know, there, there's even the, um, you know, the, the old medicine remedy remedies turned out to have, something in them that was uh, as active and, and many companies developed drugs for years by, you know, going to plants and so forth and natural products and uh, extracting chemicals that worked. So I think that is an understudied area. I think there are lots of uh, aspects that, that need more work, but right now there's nothing that I know of that will help. I know there's a lot of discussion about zinc. Now I get lots of emails about whether zinc can help mm -hmm. with the uh, COVID-2. 
but I see no data, no solid data that would suggest that. As zinc has always been thought to be a, a preventative for common colds, same with vitamin C, but I don't think the, the, the literature is at all convincing there. So I think in the end, your, you know, your immune system is what is really going to end up helping you. Um, one quick note on um, COVID-2. The, uh, there's been some rumor, just uh, I had forgotten this one from before, that it had potentially long-term respiratory effects that could cause permanent lung damage. Is that baseless or true? It's again, we don't have any studies that Can't address long-term effects. So anyone who says that there are long-term effects is, is simply wrong because it's only been a few months since we have. Sorry. I mean, like, patients, right? uh, yeah, I should be more specific. I mean, people that are recovering from the illness, but have suffered lung damage as a result. In the short term. It's always, yeah. With a serious lung infection, it's always possible. It's possible. Okay. Mm -hmm. But yeah, the kind mm -hmm. of damage with this one in particular, we, we need to, that's all going to be coming out in the next months and, and we'll be able to answer that. So if you want to come back and we can chat about it when it's, <laughs> when it's out there, we could do well, that. I think we'd love to um, maybe touch base with you again. Uh, you know, as this evolves, um, I think Devin, I, I assume you as well, we'd, we'd love to, potentially follow up depending on how the outbreak evolves. Well, I know um, there's the, the entity that uh, recommended us uh, to you uh, wants you to start streaming on Twitch, doctor. Uh, yeah. And it's something that you should consider because uh, you'd have quite an audience here, especially with the, uh, with the, with the pickup of, um, with, with the pickup of, of coronavirus and, and the interest in this, I can tell you that if it'd be an interesting thing to consider, it's a, it's a way so to. So you're saying, so I stream my podcasts when I record them streaming yeah. on Twitch? Yeah. Yes. What we're doing now is we're actually streaming live to a website right. where chat's responding in real time. And you, you right. yourself could do that for free on Twitch for no problem at all. Yeah. And we yeah, have, you obviously yeah, I, have all I the will. equipment you need. Yeah. I was yeah. saying, you're on with us your, right your now. setup is actually like super badass, actually. <laughs> Like I was expecting you to come in here with like a like a like a five dollar mic and like a you've got know. a whole no. thing. No, yeah. we, I've been podcasting for ten years, so we're, wow. you know, our equipment has evolved. But mm -hmm. I would I would so I'll come back because I think you know in a month or two we'll be able to, there'll be many more questions that arise we can address. Mm -hmm. But uh, as far as streaming, I would definitely consider that. So uh, let me look into it because nice. I just need to get webcams to my other hosts, which is pretty trivial. So I can tell you, you're very popular. Um, I, I, I talk to a lot of people on this show and chat really likes you. So this is a oh, very thanks. good sign. Good. Yeah. You That's explain good. things in a way that is very clear and, and easy to understand. Mm -hmm. Chat's glad. asking for links to the podcast, at, at least in my chat. If you go to his, uh, to the, to the website there, uh, virology.ws, um, his podcasts are then linked off of that. And so I've listened to his most recent podcast. It's uh, called TWIV This Week in Virology. So very, um, uh, very informative. Also, there's a blog. The blog contains links to all kinds of information. Um, uh, recently, obviously, highly focused on this outbreak. Uh, but yeah, I think... Um, if you want that information, it's all there. I think, um, I mean, I, I think doctor that if you, you did consider this, I mean, you could even get so popular that you might even go viral. Yeah, <laughs> that'd be great. Oh, so I want to, to happen. I want to mention, um, <laughs> the Devin dab. Okay. That's so, my one for today. Right? <laughs> just one yeah. plug. Um, 
Last week, I spoke with an infectious disease physician who is really up on the, the medical aspects. And he, you can find that on TWIV. Uh, and then tomorrow, I'm going to do a, a TWIV with an, an epidemiologist here at Columbia who really understands better the spread and the restriction and so forth. So that could be interesting. I'll release that probably on Wednesday. So as you said, you can go to virology.ws, which is my general blog, but every, all the pods are, are hosted at microbe.tv. That's another place you can go. All right. Microbe.tv, pretty Microbe. easy to remember Dot and TV. find. And that's, that's super interesting uh, that you have, uh, it, you know, epidemiologists coming on because obviously uh, we're talking about an epidemic yeah. and, and that's what's driving the fear at some level people, you know, for a practical viewpoint could care less about exactly why it's going to kill them if right. it is. And they're right. more interested in, is it going to get them? Right. Um, so, so I would say probably not. Probably it's really not. very unlikely. Your, your risk is very, very low. Uh huh. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, Okay, well, um, I want to go ahead and let you go. You've been very, very generous with your time. Um, and uh, for those of you uh, who haven't yet followed uh, Vincent's website or blog, please do. Um, my wonderful co-streamer, Devin Nash, uh, I don't know. Are you going to stay online for a while, Devin, with your community? Yeah, I'm going to do like a recap on everything and uh, talk through it for a bit. So I invite anybody watching now, if you haven't gone over and followed Devin or want to watch him, I have to go back to work. I'm going to do that. Before I do that, we were generous enough to be hosted earlier this morning uh, by another doctor, Dr. Alok Kanajia hosted us. Uh, Dr. K, as you know, uh, is a, focused on mental health and he's streaming right now. So after I let uh, Dr. Rack and Yellow go, I'm going to uh, take all the viewers here and we'll go over and join his stream. And that's why I'm inviting you. Go see Devin manually if you want to. I won't feel bad. But obviously, I want to thank you very much, Vincent, for taking... That feels bad, man. So, uh, well, that was... Uh, Devin, you know, um, I, I love you and I would never do anything different. But I host Dr. you every day, dog. Uh yeah, Dr. K was very generous, and I thought it was uh, appropriate, and that's why I'm promoting you right now. Um, <clears throat> with that said, though, uh, I really want to thank you uh, very much for coming on our show and spending so much time with us. And uh, uh, if there's any last or parting words you'd like to say, otherwise, we're all incredibly appreciative. So I, I appreciate you bringing me on. I appreciate everyone who's been uh, watching and listening. And I think this would be a great place for me to bring our message. So I'll seriously consider doing that. Uh, Woo! Let's that go. would be great. That would and be maybe, great. We'd maybe you guys can help me out to get it started. I absolutely would. Yes. Actually, um, uh, there's a there's been a bunch of Twitch staff watching. Yeah. Um, and so the actual staff of of Twitch proper, the company. There's been a number of people watching. They helped promote. We were on the homepage. You said, interestingly, that Twitch had, in our pre-show discussion, you said people at Twitch had actually reached out to you years ago. Right. Uh, because of the nature of companies, I would suspect institutionally that's been forgotten. 
yep. Um, yep. that anyone at Twitch <laughs> ever reached out. Uh, but it can be brought back up because Twitch is very interested in broadening the type of uh, content uh, on on Twitch TV. I think um, I, I, I think on another note of that, you are basically doing what I view as a public health service. I mean, uh, th there's there's enormous implications to the importance of this beyond uh, uh, just um, uh, entertainment value, right? I mean, and you're creating something that I think is extremely important to the platform, and I think. Um, it's similar to people like Dr. K, it, it, it would it would show in, in in your support. People would come come at you with an unbelievable amount of support, understanding that whenever somebody seems to provide value at that level on this platform. Um, one of the things that uh, I've seen happen, and Ethan and I have seen happen in the last, I'd say like six months to a year, it's been fairly recent, is that professionals are actually using this platform um, for for initiatives like these. And it's really, really exciting to see. And in my opinion, it's like something that I, I've been broadcasting for eight years and I've wanted to see this happen since eight years ago, right? So the fact, so, so people like you um, introducing ideas like this uh, to this platform and others uh, through digital media are so important. I'm so grateful that you took a couple hours of your time to do this. It reached thousands of people and, and I know has made a huge impact on on those people. So, so I'm very grateful for that. And Vincent, what I can certainly promise, I believe, is I can reach back into Twitch and uh, make sure that uh, if you're interested in broadcasting on Twitch, there's someone available to help you. I think that uh, I, I don't think Twitch, uh, given that you were contacted in the past, would have any hesitancy to provide some help and guidance. And of course, Devin and I would also be very willing to help if you end up deciding that's something you can do. I do think um, there's no sign that, that worry about uh, COVID-19 is going to go away in the next few weeks. I think that's impossible. And so there's definitely a lot of interest right now. No, I, I agree that it'll be around for a while, but I do also hope that at least a fraction of people who watch will continue to learn because yeah. that way next time you're going to be ready. Completely. <laughs> All right. So with that, thank you so much. Thank you, man. Uh, yeah, well, I will. Thank you will. both. Great, great time. All right. Yeah, yeah, you're awesome, man. This is good. And thank you again <laughs> to Ethan, and then a shout out again to Liger Box for making this possible. I guess is the, the dude that uh, put us yeah, all together. Yeah, he, he connected yeah, us, which is uh, amazing. Yeah, our mutual connections, uh, uh, Vincent uh, Simon goes by a, a nickname in chat, mm -hmm. which is common on Twitch. Mm -hmm. uh, so he goes by Liger. Um, Imagine so using your case, real name on Twitch. I, only your first name. Yeah, only your first name. name. There's a lot of Simons in the world. People that stream using their real name on Twitch. Yeah. Huh. All right. Yeah. So thank you so much. Have a okay. great thank day. Thank you so much. You too. Amazing. You. Thank you so much. See Goodbye. See you soon. Bye.